This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. All right, we've got some sponsors for the pod now. Wait, what? Every link you need for the things we talk about here is at artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors. First up, books. If you're into this podcast, Odds are you're probably a reader. We've got links to buy new books from bookshop.org and used books from alibris.com. And if you want to listen to your books, we recommend and use audible.com. It's great and the catalog is huge. All right. So if you're listening to this, you are online. Maybe you're very online. You probably have a website or are thinking of starting one. Maybe you want a website like artofdarkpod.com. We built that with WordPress, which is by far the most popular way to create websites. And the single best host for serious WordPress is WP Engine. I've personally used them for over a decade now, and I don't host my websites anywhere else. Go to artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors and click on the WP Engine link to learn more. Finally, the best way to support the show is at patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. Get the bonus After Dark content for every episode, access to the book club, and more. Thanks for supporting Art of Darkness. And I, I don't think that was too painful. I think no, we did a pretty good job good. there. Yeah. Yeah, that sounded good. Yeah. Yeah, we appreciate it. And we are back with another episode. Art of Darkness, the podcast about the dark side of creativity. I am Brad Kelly. This is Kevin Kautzman. Kevin, how are you doing tonight, sir? I'm great. I'm okay. living a day of pandemonium here. <laughs> it's all happening around the the Kautzstead, the Owl House, as we call it. Very busy day, but I'm really excited for this episode. Brad, how are you? I'm doing really good. I'm doing really good. Yeah, we're ready for pandemonium, which means like, all the demons live here, something like that, um, But which is a coinage of John Milton. Um, and that's who we're talking about. We're talking about John Milton. Um, I guess core we'll just into it. This is What's a core that? episode. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yeah. you're oh, right. Yeah. This, this is a this core is... episode. And I think I got a little bit to say. I almost have a, I don't want to say it's a disclaimer, but I got a little PSA about Milton that and this episode. But. First, I want to ask our opening question to you, Kevin. What do you know about John Milton? Paradise Lost. Yes. Coined a lot of words. Yeah. I learned that recently. Yeah. In in the English language, placed among Chaucer, mm. Shakespeare, mm-hmm. as important in terms mm. of the language. Very difficult to read. Not a fun time to crack open Paradise Lost. Mm-hmm. And you're you're made to feel like you ought to, certainly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, what a poet. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm thinking 16th century. A little bit later. Yeah. 17th. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, All right. Well, was born in, born in 1608. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, hey, I'll forgive myself there. Hey, we don't know everything on Art <laughs> no, of Darkness. Just, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, but English. Yes. Uh, ex- and probably extremely English. And yes, yes. English in a way that probably his grandfather wasn't English, even though he wasn't born far from there, if that makes sense. And we'll get, we'll talk about why that is. Understood. I couldn't really even say where in England. And I assume that we're going to learn all of that on this yeah. episode brad i cannot wait i also sure. know that that uh paradise lost is quite famous for making the voice of the devil sympathetic and yeah 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 mm-hmm. that's right I, I like what you said about uh that's all that's all right on and we're gonna have a lot more detail on all those aspects um one thing that was interesting you said it's one of these things you're made to feel like you you're supposed to read or something mm-hmm. uh in my search I one of the many, many, many pieces of, uh, you know, writing that I read in preparation for this was by the uh, from the BBC, which said why you should reread Paradise Lost. Like everyone, (laughs) everyone, you know, has read this poem, but you should probably reread it. Like (laughs) that is state media for you. That is the beam. I'm sure their average reader is like, "Mm, yes, I should really should brush up on on my Milton. (laughs) I've I've, uh, lived in England. I've spent time over in England. And yes, I can confirm that they're all carrying around uh, Paradise Lost and uh, Canterbury Tales under their yeah. under their uh, arms at all times yeah <laughs> right right Even very the fancy yeah erudite <laughs> especially the chaps <laughs> right boy mate but, oh, oh, <laughs> what's this about satan then eh? yeah <laughs> oh, okay no terrible more, no more accents on that's art of darkness like, we we like our uh our listeners from across the pond of Nothing course of yeah. course, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to do Milton. I wanted to, mm. us and our audience to get a deeper uh, appreciation and understanding of the the lineage of English literature. So I am jacked yeah. because yeah. this is important. This and this yeah. is a, I will confess this is a bit of a knowledge gap for me. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, I will get to learn along with our listeners. What are you going to do? For the After Dark for Patreon, patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. Support the pod. You get extra stuff, including these After Darks. It's worth it. We make make it worth it. What are you going to do for After Dark? We're going to talk about Milton's... We're going to touch on it in the main episode, but we'll go into depth um, on Milton's relationship with his daughters. And it's a bit dark. And... We're going to answer the question, what happened to John Milton's bones? And it's a surprisingly interesting answer. So um, Mm. we'll get into that. Uh, Yeah. So, um, right. So that's for folks who, if people are just tuning in, this is the first episode you've listened to, um, how the show works. We're going to go for as long as it takes to tell the John Milton story, digging into his work. And then afterwards, for our beloved Patreon supporters, we're going to have this extra 20 to 30 minute, possibly a shade more than that content, um, patreon.com slash rfdarkpod, where you will also get access to our book club meetings, where you can come hang out with us, talk about a book. Coming up very soon is uh, House of Sleep, my book, we're covering that. Um, But we're doing a approximately one a, one a month until the end of the year. So 
Um, yes, join us. and the the big uh, thing for the book club is in December we're doing a mm-hmm. Blood Meridian special with the great Aaron Gwynn. You're not going to want to miss it. I insisted we do Brad's book for the book club. It's also a banger. I've been rereading it here, getting ready for the club. Dude put a lot of work into this. And if nothing else, you should definitely check out his book, House of Sleep. It is worth reading. Uh, The book club's a really good time. And and that's just part of Patreon. And you can be Mm -hmm. involved in the book club or you can just go, oh, I'm just going to listen back to what these these folks are talking about. You choose your level of involvement. Also, do not sleep on our Telegram channel. Mm -hmm. We have a very lively very interesting telegram channel you have to imagine what art of darkness listeners talk about when mm-hmm. 150 plus are in a chat room all together it's a pretty wide range of things just like the mm-hmm. pod we cover milton we cover frida Kahlo, we cover burroughs we covered victor Grun, the guy who invented mm-hmm. the mall it's heterodox this is a heterodox pod and mm-hmm. so go there go to t.me slash art of dark pod and I, I I do want to shout out or or uh, give a mention to our our good friend of the pod Stephanie Leahy. I know mm-hmm. she's uh, she's going through something. Just want to say Stephanie, uh, we we love you, we care about you very much, and uh, we hope you're you're doing well. Yeah, I second yeah. that. Yeah, I second yeah. That. she was on the the famous Crowley episode. Mm-hmm. She's the one who who carried me along uh, <laughs> as we as we discussed the great beast six 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 you know and that's interesting too I I, I have no doubt that he was well versed in Milton oh, yeah. mm-hmm. oh, yeah. I guarantee it yes yeah so let's get into it so um we've kind of talked about it but let me just give a little bit of uh if you're listening to this and you're still sort of like well who cares about Milton right for whatever for fill in the blank reason and just give you a few uh specifics um Dr. Samuel Johnson, who people may know, the famed English writer who practically invented literary criticism and was uh, some argued was the most distinguished man of letters in English history. Um, despite his critiques of Milton, and he had a number of them, basically said that he was the one English poet that one uh, had to keep coming back to. He um, and he didn't say that about Shakespeare. Um, now, he didn't say anything bad about Shakespeare, but it wasn't. Milton was to Samuel Johnson, perhaps on a higher tier. Um, similarly, writers like Wordsworth, Blake, Shelley, uh, Keats, many others, you know, countless really um, think of him or thought of him as a forebearer, even though, um, as the professor John Rogers says, he was a difficult and demanding one. His best known work, Paradise Lost, is kind of that. We're, and we're going to talk in detail about Paradise Lost, of course. Um, it's that kind of rare volume of literature that not only has this enormous influence, you know, on on writing, uh, but also seeps into having like theological and religious significance. Um, it's you know, it's not so much that he uh, he maybe changed the church or anything like that, but I think he he populated the imaginations of a lot of religious people with images and 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 concepts that perhaps weren't there before. Um, yeah, like, some of like them are Kanye West. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. John Milton, Ken, Kanye West. It's really, it's practically the same episode. <laughs> no, but I, it's a good. <laughs> um, but we're gonna see how that happened. But but there is a way in which, um, you could a person could, and this is uh, I, I said at the beginning I was gonna have a little bit, bit of a disclaimer, and let me do it now. It's kind of a two parter, <clears throat> and I don't know if this is a disclaimer or not. But one, um, there's a lot of 
this is a very religious subject and I'm not trying to, you know, lean one way or the other. I'm just trying to present what Milton was up to. So, you know, this is if, if you if you end up hating this guy for his religious her you know, heresy, that's OK. I mean, I, I don't this isn't an argument for anything that he believed. Just setting that. Just setting that. Heresy, police! Yeah, yeah. We're coming yell at with our, our beads. <laughs> yell ready. at Milton. Don't yell at me. <laughs> I feel like that could be a new bingo card for ne uh, uh, spot for next year. Is it? Uh, yeah. The heresy police. Right. Wee, yeah. wee, wee, wee. Heresy um, spotted. Yeah, I, I, I just, I just, it's gonna get, it's gonna get weird. I think on the religious element a little bit. Well, um, that period too. I mean, that was. That's part of it. Yeah, that's, that's the part kickoff. Of yeah. I mean, it's getting real, yeah. and we yeah. we still live in the wake of of that. A lot of people no, point sure. to the Enlightenment, sure. but it it kind of kicked off. Mm -hmm. This is where modernism kicked off, like yeah. moder modernity, if not modernism, modernity kicked Correct. off right around here. Correct, mm -hmm. and and yeah. in fact, uh, Milton is basically considered the first great writer of modern English uh, for for a lot of people. Early, this is technically early modern English if you get into the linguistic taxonomies but yeah. i was just pulling that out of my hat so i'm yeah. glad i was right yeah yeah you're the man um and the other thing i want to say too is um before we get into this milton people academics have there are a number of academics who've made their whole career on milton you can i literally watched an entire semester of lectures on milton in the last month right um, okay, Brad watches an entire semester of lectures on Milton and summarizes <laughs> it for you so you don't have to. If that's not worth $5 a month, $10 yeah. a month, I don't know what is. Patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. Alternatively, if you're not a Patreon person, you can go to the website. And if you want to give us a one-time donation, PayPal, there's yeah. a link there. Support the pod. Go on, Brad. You were saying, yeah. so you watched academics. and Yeah, okay, okay. my point is, it, it, there's been a lot of thought about Milton and I'm going to gloss over things that some people are going to think are very important. I'm going to emphasize stuff that maybe some people don't think is super important. My, my point is this is a huge topic in a lot of ways and we're going to do our best to get through it. And I think there's a great story here and I'm going to try to tell it to you, but just know, we know that there is an infinite chaos of Milton, Miltonia, Miltonia out there. And we're going to, touch as much of it as we can i'm um, preparing dante next mm -hmm. fair yeah. to say dante is like the attack kind of the italian yeah corollary to milton in english for sure yeah roughly yeah. okay I, yeah absolutely well then so these two episodes these two episodes <laughs> will pair will pair well together they will they absolutely mm. will and, and milton was was very much aware of dante um okay now Continuing on, why are we why are we why are we listening? Why are we talking about Milton? We've got this religious aspect, the, the way that some people might you could even conceive or make an argument that uh, Paradise Lost is an, a, a religious text in like not a text about religion, but an actual religious text. Um, I'm not making that argument, but people have. Um, uh, let's see what else. Um, also, some people will say that without Milton, the trajectory of the development of speculative literature, such as science fiction and fantasy, would be radically would have been radically different. I don't know if that's that. I don't know how strong the argument is there, but he was certainly participating in a it's a fantasy epic as a genre is what is what Paradise Lost is. Now, you can talk about the religious truth of it, but as a 
as a format, as a genre, as a medium. It's essentially a fantasy epic. Um, Okay. Going on. The coinage thing. Very interesting. Let me read something about this really quick. Um, Here are some words that he came up with, or he was the first person to really use. Uh, Some of these are just, what's that? Bussin. (laughs) He said no cap. (laughs) He's <laughs> um, some of these are just using the word in a new uh, context that it hadn't been used in before. But as like now that context is how we use it. Um, infuriate. Mm. Uh, uh, let's see. Um, chastening. Civilizing. Mm. Uh, pandemonium. Satanic. Divorceable. Liturgical. Mm. Pedagogism, uh, prelatry, like prelates. I might be mm-hmm. saying that incorrectly. Um, uh, let's see. Lovelorn, uh, mm. ecstatic, mm. enduring, uh, sensuous. Mm. Uh, I should call her. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's getting, it's getting hot in here. Debauchery, depravity, um, and supposedly extravagance or flutter. Like if you have a flutter in your stomach. Um, hmm. Without Milton, there'd be no cooking uh, or hurried uh, well things. You wouldn't call things well balanced. We wouldn't have the word economize. You would never say that you were half starved. You would never say something um, you had eaten unhealthily. Um, he came up with the word padlock. Uh, hmm. He came up with untack for untacking horses, unfurling banners, acclaim, uh, dismissive uh supposedly criticize so you're talking about a guy who not by himself but as part of a a movement you're talking about a guy who basically invented modern english one of the inventors of modern english in a lot of ways um so you can imagine it is a little difficult to read because he's teetering on the edge of legibility for us you know he's putting things out there that we take for granted now, but to his contemporaries must have also been a little like, wait, what's he, what's cooking, cooking, you know, like <laughs> it's very strange um, now. Okay. How many languages did this dude speak? Um, it's not exactly clear, but he was very fluent, particularly reading. I think he read them in more than he spoke them necessarily, but sure. Latin, Greek, Italian, French, um, probably a handful of sure, others. Probably German as well. Probably. I would not surprise yeah. me if it was true, if he also knew German. Um, started learning Latin at seven. Um, now we've got to return. We've got to return <laughs> to Latin. And I'm quite serious. If you're a young person or you have, you know, you're raising young people, I strongly recommend Latin, even for mm-hmm. half a year. You mm-hmm. don't need to devote your life to Latin necessarily, but just getting a year of it will change your mm-hmm. perspective on the on the English language. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I wish I had done more of it for sure. There's still time, Brad. Yeah, there is sort of. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Now, this is not to say that that Milton is not without his critics. He's had an outsized outsized sounds like overrated. He has had an enormous influence on English letters. And he even a lot of his critics who, for reasons we'll find out, um, think he was personally um, repulsive, that he was a uh, uh, heretic um, and even had issues with some of his poems almost everybody still sort of gives him the crown in a way right it's like Milton was great and he was this and that right so um, like for instance uh, William Blake said that he was party of the devil 
that basically the the Milton didn't really know what he had been. He had the devil talking in his ear. Um, so, but also said that Milton was a true 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 poet. So you've got you've always got this kind of content this this tension going on in any analysis of of Milton. Um, T.S. Eliot, close a little closer to our time. Um, he also does this kind of thing where he 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 sort of gives a lot of credit to Milton, but he also has um, very <laughs> harsh things to say. I'm going to read a couple bits from T.S. Eliot. Kind of maybe weird to start with a T.S. Eliot quote instead of a Milton quote, but nonetheless, uh, quote, and he's talking about Milton here. As a man, he is antipathetic, either from the moralist's point of view or from the theologian's point of view or from the psychologist's point of view or from that of the political philosopher or judging by the ordinary standards of likableness in human beings, Milton is unsatisfactory. The doubts which I have to express about him are more serious even than these. His greatness as a poet has been sufficiently celebrated, though I think largely for the wrong reasons. His misdeeds as a poet have been called to attention, but usually in a passing. What seems to me necessary is to assert at the same time his greatness and the serious charge to be made against him in respect of the deterioration, the peculiar kind of deterioration to which he subjected the language. So T.S. Eliot thinks he committed crimes against English, basically. Um, here's another bit from, from Eliot. The most important fact about Milton, for my purpose, is his blindness. Now, Milton was blind for like the last 20 years of his life, including when he wrote Paradise Lost. Uh, Eliot continues, I do not mean that to go blind in Middle Ages itself enough to determine the whole nature of a man's poetry. Blindness must be considered in conjunction with Milton's personality and character and the peculiar education which he received. It must also be considered in connection with his devotion to uh, and expertness in the art of music. Had Milton been a man of very keen senses, I mean, of all the five senses, his blindness would not have mattered so much. But for a man whose sensuousness, such as it was, had been withered early by book learning, it mattered a great deal. Now, there's a little bit here. Now, there's a bit he says at some point in that I'm not going to keep reading it, but he says at some point in that that Eliot, nothing in Eliot's paradise or sorry, in Milton's paradise lost is an image um, that basically not only was Milton actually blind in the real world, but in his imagination, he had no ability to see. We're going to find out if There's that's actually true. One of these not. guys who can't imagine an apple. Right. That's, that's yeah, kind of what T.S. Eliot's trying to say. Hmm. And yeah, and we'll, we'll, and when we get into paradise lost one, that's one thing I want to kind of bump up against is like, is that actually true? Are we seeing anything? Um, so anyway, let's, uh, yeah. Um, oh, one thing we haven't mentioned yet. Um, <clears throat> Milton was also enormously important to English politics in his time. Um, we're going to get to why, but like he trying to pose it just correctly. He worked for a post-revolutionary government and like a very high position. Um, we're going to get to how that came to be and what the sort of implications and outcome of that were, but not only, uh, this would be like, who's a non-elected, but powerful government official. may just name one, uh, not an unelected, uh, the, the Noral Vocal, the, the woman who heads the CDC de drug okay. department. Okay. She's a lot. This is what they talk about when they talk about the quote unquote deep state. Yeah. I yeah. know her. I know of her because she's like 
Trotsky's great granddaughter. Okay. Right. And she's in this really critical position around like drug policy and drug addiction policy. Yeah. So that's fun. Fun fact. Right. Imagine if she retired from that position and then wrote Mm. Moby Dick. You'd be Mm. like, wait, what? Who? Sure. Wait. What is this person? Right. Like, <laughs> what is this? Yeah. Very yeah. interesting. Right. Hmm. So that's the kind of thing we're dealing with here. Right. Okay. Um, so we'll just get into the basics here. Set you, set you up. Uh, <laughs> the real spicy answer would have been Joe Biden. <laughs> but I, I oh, stayed away from that. I'm just yeah. speculating. That would <laughs> right. have been that right. would have been a very spicy answer. We're, we're going to see that there are times in Milton's time is similar to our time in them in many ways. I think you'll I think you'll see some correspondences. Nothing changes. Yeah. So John Milton was born December 9th, 1608 in London, the Bread Street Ward, which is in those days was excuse me, a largely working class district. Milton's own house that he grew up in was called uh the Spread Eagle because that was the name the sign hung over the shop downstairs. Um huh. And this the spread eagle was the emblem of the worshipful company of scriveners. Milton's father was a very, uh, very successful scrivener, um, also a goldsmith. Um, and according to w- some ways of looking at it, this was sort of pr- before the invention of banks. If you can imagine going back that far, he would have also been sort of like a pawnbroker. Like if you needed money, you went to John Milton's dad. He loaned, you know, he took some piece of jewelry you had or something and he loaned you money and you paid him back. I just Um, looked up Bread Street Ward. And if this is the same place, this is like right smack dab in the center of London, Mm -hmm. right next to like St. Paul's Cathedral. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is, yeah. Yeah, he was right. He was, yes, he was right. He was right near St. Paul's Cathedral for sure. Yeah. I love walking around that town. Yeah. Yeah. All this history. Just gets me so. Uh, I imagine excited. there's something there that is still extant from this time. There's got to be something. Oh, for sure. There. Yeah, there's yeah. a vibe for sure. Yeah. We got to go. We've got to do a Art of Darkness live in yeah. London at some point. Ooh. We got to put that energy out there. Yeah, Ooh. put that energy out there. It'll be good. Invite us. It's going to be fun. I yeah. Yeah, love that. That's a fun town. Yeah. Now his father, uh, John Milton's father, was uh, a so he, he had this role. He was a scrivener, goldsmith, etc. But he was also he was also interested in the arts. He was a trustee of Blackfriars. Uh, playhouse um this is for people who may know this is an indoor theater in which shakespeare worked in his later years um uh john milton senior is also a talented musician could play the uh, the small organ the bass viola um milton senior had been the son of a catholic and had been uh disinherited by um John, our John Milton's fa- grandfather as a young man. So there was a split in the family between the Catholic, Catholic, Catholicism and Protestantism. Um, this left Milton Sr., John Milton's, John Milton's father, to become a self-made man, which he accomplished. Um, and it would be enough that basically our John Milton could be a trust fund kid in his early twenties. Uh, we're gonna get, we're gonna get, we're gonna get. I was to gonna that. say this is uh, a yeah. dad has a link in Wikipedia here. Yes, it, yeah. a little bit. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Now, Not- of course, the John Milton we're covering has risen to much higher prominence, but at the time, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, he's a player. He probably his dad probably had met Shakespeare at one point. You know that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, now I said this is gonna get religiously something complicated something we do need to probably do just like a tiny bit of religious history or else a lot of this stuff stuff isn't going to make any sense so 
I don't really know where to, I, I didn't, uh, hopefully this is enough detail for people who aren't familiar with this era and hopefully it's interesting. Um, so 1608, Milton is born. 1517 is when Martin Luther publishes the 95 theses, the famous pounding, you know, pounding them on the, on the door of the church. That probably stands in as good as anything as the beginning of the Reformation, though there was rumblings oh, and trends. Go back. <laughs> you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> now, uh, if we look specifically in English, I mean, there's a whole category of, quote, English Reformation. Obviously, Martin Luther wasn't in England for people who aren't aware of that. So it it it, it spread and eventually eventually lands in England. Um where it really kind of comes to prominence in England is when uh, King Henry VIII, who was the king from 1509 to 1547, he wanted to have his marriage annulled and Pope Clement VIII refused. So largely in response to this, King Henry VIII um, instituted Reformation Parliament, which abolished papal authority and uh. positioned himself as the head of the Church of England. Um, so it didn't it was, have a whole it was lot also to do a with huge land grab. Everybody oh, yeah, yeah. likes to point at the yeah. He wanted to get it the well. That's because it's this one thing you can like. Right, yeah, it's a, a wedge, it's, and and yeah. now the now the the crown owns all of the uh, right. papal, all of the properties all throughout. Right, right. the right. realm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so from uh, that time, the the church, the Church of England, became more and more Protestant until the reign of Queen Mary, Queen Mary the First, also known as Bloody Mary, from fifteen fifty three to fifteen fifty eight who restored Catholicism and put England back under papal jurisdiction. Um, I'm going to try so, to stay neutral here because I, I want to say too many things. I know. I'm just trying to get through this. To keep you, <laughs> this is, uh, I'm, trying yeah, to, I don't I'm trying to like, yeah. uh, what is that? Um, when you just throw a lot of words at somebody, gish gallop. So yeah, just, yeah, yeah. you can't stick in there. I, I don't want guys <laughs> showing up at my door with like balaclavas. Right. Um, uh, so, so, Basically, the way to the, the there's a there's a not an end to this, but a, a, a worthwhile stopping point, at least for the English Reformation, is when uh, Queen Elizabeth the first uh, enacted or under Queen Elizabeth, there was the Elizabethan religious settlement uh, in 1603, which, uh, you know, five years before Milton was born. And this is basically a law that. This is too simple of a way to put it, but for our purposes, it basically made Catholicism illegal in England um, around 1603. Uh, now, people were still Catholics there, but it, you know, it 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 was the went law was on the books as you were not supposed to practice this. Yeah, right? famous yeah. went underground. Yeah. yeah, right, right. Now, Milton, again, Milton's grandfather had been Catholic, but his father had not been and it had been there'd been a big division in the family. Milton grew up attending the Church of All Hallows, uh, of All Hallows just down the street. Um, he was baptized by a respected Puritan minister. Um, interesting to note, though, despite the fact that Milton wrote Paradise Lost, in adulthood, he basically never attended church. Um, and some scholars, you know, at some point he would question, call into question basically every Christian tenet at some point. Um, it's a little difficult to in some ways to ask what were Milton's religious ideas, it kind of, you have to kind of ask what month and year it is when you're, when you're asking the question, right? You know, how was he 12 or was he 50? Uh, it makes a huge difference. Um, but there is some scholars have suggested that in Milton's head, he didn't need to go to church of any kind because he was really the only true Christian. So that's the kind of dude we're dealing with now. 
<laughs> the logic. I mean, it is sort of the logical consequence of Protestantism. It's sort of for for many. I mean, it it, it relates to sort of sola scriptura. I mm-hmm. mean, like we we've got to find this ourselves. Yeah, and yeah. it's not. There, there's something to that, of course. You know, Milton thinking he's the only one. That's probably you can't really yeah. have a church of one. Right now, he never said that. This is sort of people cobbling it together. But the fact that he did basically call into question every teaching uh, at some point or another. Um, hmm. Yeah. So, okay, boyhood. Um, This is a time where public education isn't really a thing. Um, People probably already know that. Um, But he John Milton was provided with a home tutor, uh, actually a a number of them. Chief among them was uh, this guy named Thomas Young, who was a Scottish Presbyterian minister um, and theologian who actually would later. This is a guy Milton would know for most of his life and would play a role in some of the political entanglements later on uh milton would learn latin at age seven and he was pretty serious about um i almost said education but he was actually critical he was actually skeptical about educational institutions but he was very serious about learning <laughs> um and let me give you a couple of things we'll start to hear his voice now here's from paradise regained this is this paradise regained is paradise lost to electric boogaloo from Paradise Regained, he says, uh, quote, when I was a child, no childish play to me was pleasing. All my mind was set serious to learn and know and thence to do what might be public good. OK, now here's another thing he says in Aeropagitica, which we're going to talk about a hugely important uh, document of political philosophy, um, quote, Books are not absolutely dead things, but do contain a potency of life in them to be as active as that soul whose progeny they are. Nay, they do deserve, as in a vial, the purest efficacy and extraction of that living intellect that bred them. A good book is the precious lifeblood of a master spirit, embalmed and treasured up on purpose to a life beyond life. Wow. Yeah. I quite that's like be- that. That's, that's uh, beautiful. Yeah. yeah. We are yeah. book respecters on yes. the pod. Yeah. Did you want to yeah. mention your source material too for the? Episode? Oh yeah, I think so. I, yeah, I definitely yeah. meant to. I appreciate that. My biggest yeah. probably there's there's like a hundred and twenty books on Milton, <laughs> so I didn't read all of them. My biggest one is John Milton: A Biography by this gentleman named Neil Forsyth. Quite good, not super long, um, but good, um, well well put together. And of course, Paradise Lost, then the notes, commentary, and the first Milton biography by his nephew Edward Phillips is, are in here. Um, wow, that's a doorstopper. Yeah, yeah. And then major works, a couple things in here biographically, and then there's a couple little readings and poems I'll do. And then um, probably the other big one, I've got a couple of scattered articles that I'll mention the name of when we come to them. And another big one is the lecture series on Milton by John Rogers uh, from Yale. Um, that's free on YouTube. It's really good. He's John Rogers is great. Uh, <laughs> uh, so check that out if you, you feel like you need more Milton. Um, uh, OK, so 1620. Milton I got a fever. Go ahead. <laughs> I need more Milton. Milton. I need more Milton. <laughs> uh, you guys, it might be. Hopefully, people do after this, and they're not sick of it. It's going to be interesting. 1620. Milton attends the school associated with St. Paul's Cathedral, and it's around this time that he became obsessive for language and literature. This is probably 12 years old. Um, here he learned under a man named Alexander Gill, who is an English grammarian, spelling reformer, and ardent anti-Catholic. Um, 
he's going to come up a little later too. He gets into pretty big trouble, Alexander Gill. But Alexander Gill, for instance, in 1623, once wrote a poem celebrating the collapse of a church that killed 90 Roman Catholics. Oh, so that was nice. That was okay to just write a poem about that at that time. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, Milton makes a good friend at St. Paul's named Charles Diodati. Uh, this is probably his um, closest, this is probably like his best friend, somebody he knew from childhood into adulthood. Um, Diodati is the nephew of a distinguished uh, Calvinist scholar who tr- was the first man to translate the Bible into Italian. Um, and this relationship is, and we're, we're going to read a letter he wrote to Charles Diodati at one point because it, uh, it contains sort of his earliest poetic um manifesto i guess um but this relationship to charles diodati for people who are suspicious of milton's either homoeroticism or just neurotic sexuality they often point to this relationship of diodati as being like some kind of sublimated romance at the very least so kind of interesting um there also is a thing that seems to be happening for milton when he's a teenager he and we might go into more detail on this later. He basically at some point decides sometime in his teen years or very early 20s, he decides that um, there is a special place in heaven reserved for poets. And there's even a specialer place in heaven rever- reserved. This is how John Rogers puts it more or less. Podcasters. Yeah, right. <laughs> reserved for poets. Oh, wait, no, no. This is to um, there's a special place in heaven reserved for poets. And to be a great poet, you must be a virgin. I don't know how. What? Yeah. So wait, so, so he's a he's a vol cell? Um for a while. Yeah. Hmm. Um now what's interesting, he 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 has this thing, so he's he's very strict with himself about this. Um, but he's also in his teen years and his reading and some of the stuff he writes, he's clearly interested in violence. And I'm not saying that he's a violent person by any means, because he never was, but you can tell that there is there's the there's the 1600s equivalent of watching action movies kind of thing going on. Not necessarily bad, but just kind of interesting. He seemed to pay special note notes to battles and acts mm. of violence and slaughters and things like that. It's kind of mm. interesting. Was um, he a war guy? Because, you know, you have war guys where you'll, you'll well, be hanging out and suddenly we're talking about. The, he did the write like the first history of Britain. So hmm. he probably oh. was very interested in that sort of thing. You're, yeah. you're painting a very interesting picture of this fellow. He is yeah. quite the dude. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> he is something else, man. He really oh. is. Um, uh, now, in his teen years, these these in teens into 20s, he's starting to formulate this notion. Like I said, this he's got this religious notion of poets go to heaven. All poets go to heaven. Uh, <laughs> uh, and the best poets are virgins. But he's 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 sort of deciding to himself that like and he has he has a great quote that he's going to write a verse that would outlive him. Um, he's going to write something that will not be forgotten. That's like his that's his life goal starting sometime in his late teens that he's going to be yeah known forever i think i think quite a few people are like that still mm-hmm. share that there's an artistic motivation to say i'm gonna i'm gonna create something that they're gonna be contending with 100 years mm-hmm. from now yeah. 500 years from now now you're on another level yeah uh, yeah 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 for real mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. so he was setting out to do this this quite early and he was serious about it 
Like this wasn't this wasn't just like, you know, he's hanging out with his buddies and he's like, I'm going to write a really good poem. He was like, I'm going to point everything about my life towards me, right, being a great poet. Um, but there are some distractions and we're going to get to them. OK, so first stop along this path after, you know, normal, you know, the school, the St. Paul's Cathedral School is he attends Christ College, Cambridge. Goes there in uh, February of 1625, expecting to be um, shown into, you know, a world of of just revelatory education and insight and knowledge. And he ends up being fairly disappointed. Um, it's not the University of Texas at Austin, but it's a good school. <laughs> it's a good I've, school heard yeah. Cambr- I've heard Cambridge is a good school. <laughs> I think that's a good school. <laughs> yeah. Um, there are. This is also an interesting time, and I, I just need to peg this because it's it's we need to the the story of Milton is the story of England in his time, right? The, so I need to keep you abreast of historical happenings as we're going. So sixteen, it's very similar to Frida. Sorry, it's very mm-hmm. similar to yeah. the episode we just did, Frida Kahlo. Yeah, yeah. It's not hmm. that it's it is similar in in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Um, so sixteen twenty five, same year Milton go, starts at Christ College, Cambridge. Um, uh, King James the first dies and Charles the first is crowned. This is going to be significant. Charles the first is like a uh, antagonist for Milton in a, in a lot of ways. Um, the other thing that happens in 1625, uh, there is an outbreak of the plague that kills one sixth of the city. Um this kind of thing happens more than once in Milton's life. It's interesting to read this great biography by by um, Neil Forsyth, um, and and no and and it'll just sort of be like yeah, and then there was a plague and like a fifth of the city died, and then moving moving on. We're like what what? Hold on, <laughs> hold it's, the fort. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, you know, I, I just had a thought. It's interesting. Yeah. So when, when Charles the First pops up, do you think they call him? Charles the first right away, or do you think, they, think so. they just call him Charles? I think that they got to call him just Charles, right? Right. He, yeah. If you started calling me like Kevin the first, I'd be like, well, who's Kevin the second? Right. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. What are you trying to say? Is there somebody angling for my job? Like <laughs> off of your head. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's ironic considering what happens to Charles the first, which we'll get to. Okay. Picture of John Milton right now at this age, young man, 18 years old. He has longish hair. He wears his hair long compared to other people. He's very handsome. Uh, he tends to look quite a bit younger than he actually is until sort of like he gets into middle age. Um, and, and apparently quite the looker. Uh, of course, we don't have a photograph of him. Um, and one of the handful of images we have of him taken from the time was botched by this engraver. So it's not accurate, but apparently attractive man. I like this idea of the long hair. One of the last pieces Milton will write is a play about Samson. Um, people who know Samson's all about having the strength in the hair. Um, um, and there's at other things that are kind of going on at Cambridge. Okay. So he's, he's starting to do, he's, he's engaged on this task of of you know mastering all the things he would need to know and understand in order to be a great poet um early on we start to already see like this milton mode of writing uh poetry that is religious and political uh and aesthetic and it's it's all of these things together um he i think in many many ways to him these were all um there was a commonality between all of them, right? Um, a proper religion would be able 
would be best expressed poetically and a great story has political implications these things all these things all swim together um I, so on that note i want to read a fairly early poem by him this is uh in latin this is when he was still writing in latin he hadn't been writing in english much at this point he writes the poem in quintum novembris which is uh in english is on the 5th of november composed in 1626 so he would have been 18 this poem celebrates the anniversary of the failed gunpowder plot of 1605 when guy fox was discovered preparing to detonate explosives at the opening of parliament an event in which king james i and his family would participate um on the event's anniversary university students typically composed poems that attacked roman catholics for their involvement in treachery of this kind <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah yeah so me... <laughs> yeah 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 okay you're gonna have a hard one i got it you're hard on you're gonna have a hard time on this episode. Uh, um okay let me read a little bit of this poem though so we can finally really get something in milton's voice this is uh i'm not gonna read the whole thing but i'm just gonna read like one sort of stanza <clears throat> guy fox is one of the coolest names of all time it by is the way. it is it's a you know very thought, cool name I, I thought the maybe it is sort of the that guy of it fox he did Fox. <laughs> what, what were you going to say? <laughs> I thought I, I knew that they it was celebrated over there, but not really understanding the historical context. I thought they were celebrating that the plot happened. Uh, <laughs> yeah, truly. Apparently, yeah, they, they were like celebrating the, that the, the king good, survived. Uh, which, yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, that that is an American. That that seems right. all upside down. Well, but, no, we yeah. wouldn't. We would be like we're not going to celebrate something good like. You're telling me this the state dodged a bullet? Yeah, right, right. right. And then yeah. they have a party. It'd be like it'd be it like celebrating the day that Reagan wasn't assassinated. Like he got <laughs> right. shot, but he didn't die, and you yeah. celebrate that. Yeah, you have that, a party that, every year. It, it is a lot. Really track yeah. for us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, here's a here's a quote <laughs> from this this poem on the 5th of November. Quote. There is a place begirt with the darkness of an eternal night, the vast foundations of a building long in ruins, now the den of cruel murder and double-tongued treachery, whom raging discord brought forth at one birth. Here amid chips of stone and broken rocks lie unburied the bones of men and corpses pierced with steel. Here dark guile sits with distorted eyes. Here are seen strife and calumny with fanged jaws and fury and death in a thousand forms and fear. About the place flies horror and the bodiless shades perpetually cry through the deep silence. The conscious earth is stagnant with blood. In the innermost recesses of the cave, murder and treason lie fearfully lurking, and though none pursues them through the cavern, cavern of horrors and jagged rocks, dark with funereal shadows, with backward glances, the guilty pair retreats. The high priest of Babylon summons these Roman bullies who have been faithful through long years and thus addresses them. Okay, and then he, then we have, I'm not going to read it, but then he basically has a version of his later Satan talking to the conspirators of November, November the 5th. So interesting stuff. Kind of, we can kind of see where he's going with this sort of thing. Um, that sounds thoroughly modern. That sounds like heightened. Mm -hmm. That's language. I, I didn't have to struggle to understand what was being said. Uh, yeah, no, yeah. in a lot of times, in a lot of times what's tricky and here's what I think. Um, I think what Elliot's uh, T.S. Elliot's critique of Milton about the, the damage he did to the language wasn't so much the words or which words he chose to, and what he 
you know, and how he implemented them is really syntax. So Mil Elliot was saying, and, and this gets, this is further brought to the fore in Paradise Lost, even more so in these early poems. These early poems are in Latin translated to English by somebody else usually. And so um, he's, he's not... He's not at the dawn of an invented language, right? He's he's uh, he's he's playing in an old tradition. Um, later on, when he's writing more in English, I think Eliot's complaint is that he often distorted syntax to make things work um, on the sound level, on the level of sound, and that in doing so, he often made things more much more obscure than they had to be, um, which. It's hard to put yourself back into 1674 and understand what it would have sounded like. But to me, when I struggle with, say, Paradise Lost, it's because I'm reading three or four lines and I'm like, oh, that's the subject of the sentence. Okay. You know, right. it's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it, um, is it meant to be read aloud, Paradise Lost? Well, I, I think yeah. all poetry is to a certain degree. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. I'm sure people were reciting it to each other. Absolutely. Somebody out there probably memorized. Somebody back then probably memorized it. It's kind of insane. That sounds like a real fun night in yeah. ye old London. <laughs> yeah. me, okay. my, my mates and I are going to read Paradise Lost. Indeed. Okay. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> How much booze will there be? Not enough. Not enough. <laughs> uh, so Milton at Cambridge. We're actually going to get to a good beer drinking story here in a minute. Uh, Milton was a talented student. I mean, he's a smart guy. Again, we're dealing with a guy who very, very, very bright. So even if we disagree with him, we got to give him credit where credit's due. Um, he was, again, skeptical of the institution of education. Um, he was not yet the radical that he's going to become. And there's an incident, there's, but he's sort of getting more serious and more I guess, self-possessed. There's an incident in 1627 where Milton was a student of this man named William uh, Chapel, who's a popular teacher. Um, and nobody knows exactly what happened, but Milton was rusticated after this incident, which means he was sent home, basically, I think, for like a semester. Um, it likely has something to do with the fact that Chapel was a Arminian. That's not an Armenian, but an Arminian, uh, which is a... a sort of an antinomian uh, thought, the theological stance. Um, but suffice to say, for our purposes, it means that he believed in at least some amount of free will, this William Chapel guy did. And at this time, Milton was a staunch predestinarian. Uh -huh. <laughs> okay. Now, it's worth thinking about that these things that like we now have a conversation like, do you think we have free will or not? And people are like, I don't know, dude. Like, literally, that used to be like the underlying cause of like Somebody mass violence. Knife you over yeah. this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, exactly. true. I mean, this is. Yeah. 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 It still yeah, matters do doctrinally. And oh, it's important. Theologically. It's, you really 100%. have to. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. So. It turns out, though, that Milton, so Milton gets rusticated. This is actually what he wanted. Milton didn't really want to be in school. He is an autodidact. He's a guy who didn't need any structure to teach him. He needed a good, he needed access to good books and a pub. That's all that Milton needed to become Milton. Um, so 
When he gets rusticated, he's back with his friends. He's got his books. He's able to go to the theater. He eventually does go back to school, but that's really the milieu, the milieu he wants to be in. Um, he he uh, was also a gifted musician. Um, and by 1628, when he's 20 years old, he becomes to some degree the life of the party at Cambridge. Um, every year they had this thing at Christ College that they called assaulting. And the deal was that... Uh, a freshman would have to give a what they call a prolusion. They you know, basically you have to imagine a bunch of people at a tavern pounding on the table, drinking a lot of beer. And a freshman has to give a prolusion, which is they have to make an argument in front of everybody. Um, and <laughs> if it wasn't good enough, everybody would salt the freshman's beer. They would put salt in his beer. And it, of course, it wasn't about because it's a beer drinking thing. It's more about how witty this prolusion was. So basically, you're bringing a freshman up and you're like, can you do a little stand up routine for smart kids? And if it's not funny, we're going to pour salt in your beer. That's basically what's ha that's basically what's going on. Sounds now, kind of fun. So it does sound time. kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they were hmm. definitely having fun. Um 1628, Milton served as the master of ceremonies for this event and gives what appears to have been a very rousing prolusion that basically made an intricate mockery of the whole idea of having to do prolusions. Right? Because, of course, he's going to have to operate on. He's going to always be operating on some other level. Um, let me read I a just, little bit. Can you just imagine like David Foster Wallace sitting in the corner taking notes and right. just overthinking. <laughs> right, right, right. And I, if I just did it like this, I could. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm going to read this thing about this event from the biography. <clears throat> Quote, uh, at one point in this merry performance, Milton refers to an earlier oration, which he had thought would provoke his fellow students to dislike him. This was probably prolusion one. This is something you can go out and read if you'd like, in which it was Milton's job to argue for day in the debate over whether day or night is the most excellent. So you can imagine like, like, kid, come up. You got to defend. You got to argue why the day is better than the night. And it better be Fun. funny. Yeah. yeah, cool. I dig it. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of cool. Um, he there insults anyone who would oppose him in this kind of exercise without the proper learning, since they soon run out of things to say as dumb as the frogs of Seraphis. That's a Milton quote. Elsewhere, he it's also like, it's like early uh, it's like early battle rap. It is. Or it's yeah. sort of like yeah. high level trash talk. Absolutely. And mm -hmm. he thrived. He actually thrived on being attacked, which is mm -hmm. interest, an interesting Fun. personality trait. Um, elsewhere, he also compares such people to Shakespeare's foolish Trinculo uh, in The Tempest. We can see what Milton thought his audience might be hostile to, uh, why his, he thought his audience might be hostile to this kind of treatment. But it turns out that they rather enjoyed his wit, or so prolusion uh, six uh, implies. The speech is the occasion for much juvenile joking, playing on the names of college officials and students, and poking fun at the students' sexual urges to play the father in Cambridge Town. In the same breath, he refers to his own role as, quote, father for the occasion, master of ceremonies, and jokes about the change from his habitual nickname of the Lady of Christ. And I wanted to get up to that point. His nickname in college was the Lady of Christ or the Lady. Because of his and hair? His hair, and he was a virgin. And a uh, lot of these other guys were going to brothels. And if they weren't going, if they weren't actually getting laid, they certainly would have if they could. You know what I mean? Right. 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 <laughs> and Milton is yeah, like the, well, the superiority of the incel over the vul cell. At least mm. the incels in the game. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Exactly. And this exactly. this guy, what a character. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. uh the great uh Peniel Collada did some show art for us. She does all mm. of our 
epic portraits. And yeah. you'll see in the show art for this episode, he has wonderful locks, wonderful mm -hmm. curling locks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They called him uh, what? The Lady of the Church? What the Lady of Christ. The Lady of Christ. Yeah. And My I goodness. shorten it to the Lady. But you can just imagine 1620 something, you're in a dark pub and he's up there telling jokes and 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 people are calling him the Lady and pounding on the table. That's the Lady. You know, it's just, I love this little scene. <laughs> hmm. um, in other prolusions that he did and in uh, Milton's later, he wrote a very influential treatise on education called On Education. Um, he would take on the institution of Cambridge, which he would later articulate as monkish and miserable sophistry. And he would eventually charge the universities with bringing students to, quote, a hatred and contempt of learning and making people who could not think for themselves susceptible to tyranny. Ooh. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Got a deep thinker. Yeah. Yeah. We've come a long way. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now. Soon after the salting, though, in 1628, Milton starts to learn how serious the stakes in the intellectual game can actually be. It's one thing to be in a bar room where the whole the whole thing is, can you make other people laugh? Right. And, you know, who's the smartest in the room? That kind of thing. It's an interesting game, maybe for some people. And, and Milton certainly liked it. But soon he's going to learn that when you start playing that game broad more broadly, it can get for real. Um, now, during and this has to, we got to talk some again some English history here. During Charles the First's reign, uh, which started in 1625, Charles benefited from the loyalty of a man named George uh, Villers, the first Duke of Buckingham. Um, the first Duke of Buckingham had been a quote favorite of King James the First, and uh, the first Duke of Buckingham claimed that he was James the First's lover. Um, so. The general conception, the historical record seems to lean that James I had a sexual relationship with the first Duke of, of Buckingham, and people at the time probably knew that. It was probably in the rumor mill, certainly. Um, now, three years into the reign of Charles I, so 1628, the first Duke of Buckingham, this guy, George Villers, um, who's totally incompetent, uh, was nearly impeached twice, but saved by the king and was so diabolical that his doctor was once mobbed in the streets and killed. Right. They hated everybody hated the first Duke of Buckingham. Um, he ends up being stabbed to death by a disgruntled army officer. They, they hated him. Um, now, while this stabbing was generally celebrated in public, most people thought this was good that this guy had been stabbed in the street. Milton's friend, uh, Alexander Gill, who we mentioned earlier, um, he publicly toasted the event and called Buckingham the King's Ganymede, which for people who don't know, Ganymede is uh, the old Greek idea of the older male and the younger male having a sexual relationship. Um, that's that. Um, Alexander Gill was then uh, defrocked and uh, was... Uh, sentenced to have his ears cut off. He managed to get away without getting his ears cut off, and but he did serve two years in prison, which I'm sure was a pleasant experience. So, and this is a guy that Milton knew personally. So you're starting to see that the point I guess I'm trying to make here is as Milton starts to expand the game that he's playing, it's getting more dangerous. Um, and it gets pretty dangerous as time goes on. Um, okay. As we're heading towards graduation, for a brief time, Milton was going to go to the church. Um, if you get an MA, he got his MA in 1632. At this time, 
the list of jobs that you could get with an MA included minister. And that's pretty much it. So ah, okay. <laughs> there's All really right. nothing you could do with it. You could, I guess, teach maybe. So anyway, Again, decides... nothing changes. Nothing changes. <laughs> right. Everybody right. acts like his, we're in a, these are yeah. new problems. His entire graduating class when he got his MA in Cambridge, they all became ministers except for him. Um, uh, he, he probably didn't happen because a couple things. I think he was, um, I don't think he was theologically on board to completely, at least enough to be a minister. I mean, later he doesn't even attend church. So um, we can see that aspect of it. Also, he really, really, really wanted to be a poet, um, which pleased his father to no end, as it usually does. Dad, mm. I know you've invested in my education, but I've decided to tell you, I'm going to be I'm a poet. going to dance. <laughs> right. Right. And even though his dad is like involved in the theater and plays music, he's still like, dude, really? What? <laughs> right. So um <laughs> so okay. There's a couple it's things. All that yeah. It's all coming yeah. together. It's all coming together. Yeah. For years after he graduates Cambridge, um, his father supports him. He lives at home with mom and dad, and he pretty much just reads the whole time. Now, there is people who've said, um, and I don't think it's true, but the fact that even people even debate it is tells us something that Milton read everything available at his time in his time. Certainly impossible to do now. 1620s, mm, it's a much smaller pool to draw from, but. You know, suffice to say, um, by the end of Milton's life, he's probably as well read or more well read than any anyone else alive. Um, I think that's fair. I don't even think anybody would really dispute that. Um, he's certainly up there on a tier above basically everyone. Um, and part of how he does this is he never for years, he doesn't have to have any kind of job. And he takes the reading serious. Right. So anyway. He does get his first public poem appears in 1632. Um, interestingly, it's put in the front matter of the second folio of Shakespeare's plays. Now, how do you get, you're an unpublished poet, nobody knows who you are, how do you get a piece of writing in the front matter of a book of Shakespeare? Well, your dad is um, basically on the board of the Blackfriars Theater. So, of course... <laughs> <laughs> you know, tons of people owed his dad money in the theater community. So, of course, he's got he's got a leg up. Um, <laughs> but anyway, it's interesting that that's his first public appearance, right? Already in conversation with Shakespeare. He's, he's saying good things about Shakespeare. It's not like there's even a rivalry necessarily, at least at that point. But it's, I think, fitting that his first um, public piece of writing is essentially an introduction to the work of Shakespeare. It's there's a little bit of like a passing of the torch kind of thing, sort of beneath the surface. Um, okay, what else? Oh, so okay, so he's working for a while. Uh, he's re he's doing this sort of self. Uh, I, I think it's been called the studious retirement when he graduates from Cambridge in 1932 for a number of years, but he does. Um, after sometime after the um, the Shakespeare folio um, poem uh, or introduction, he gets commissioned to write a mask. Do you know what a mask is, Kevin? M a s q u e. 
I've heard of it. I have a vague yeah. idea. I'm the theater guy. I should know. It's yeah. it's a type of performance. I assume masks are involved. Mm-hmm. Is it is it in is it sort of an Italian style? Uh, yes, drama. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah okay. Good. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, yes. Everything right. says everything Play says right, here. right. So just stop there. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> right. Um, I think it's I think it kind of degenerated over time into sort of like the masked ball, right? Where you just go to a party with a mask. But at the time it was a it was a uh, it was a theater theatrical performance with music written specifically for it, with a pl- essentially a play written specifically for it, with elaborate set designs. And these were but these were commissioned by people rich people basically of one kind or another for you to come to their home and perform it in front of their friends oh, and so sort of like site specific mm-hmm. uh you know theater done in, in homes yeah in big homes right and you would things. it would be written to flatter the family and it would also mm. often if anybody in the family wanted to participate you know they would find back you know backup dancer you put the you know you put the niece in as a backup dancer or whatever um it's those kinds of things um but fun yeah they were they were having a good time i think (laughs) Mm -hmm. um he writes uh uh what is comes to be called comus after one of the characters this is a mask presented at ludlow castle uh commissioned uh for the entertainment of the earl of bridgewater who had married the countess of derby okay uh so Milton's mask, as I said, Comus, this is 1634. Here's the deal with Comus. It concerns two brothers and their sister lost in the woods. They they leave her to go find a, a sus, go find sustenance, I think. And she encounters the debauched Comus, a childlike Sartre figure from Greek lore. He lures her with charisma and then paralyzes her and tries to give her a drink that will overpower her with pleasure. Now, remember what Paradise Lost is They about. meet a, a satyr. Satyr. Yeah. yeah, Satyr. Yeah, yeah. what did yeah. I say? Yeah. Sartre? Oh, because yeah, I have yeah, Sartre written there. No, it's ah. all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's all right. Uh, um, fascinating. This is very interesting. Yeah. But okay. so now think of me like, uh, you know, uh, horny pan, the horny goat boy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But you think about this specific later, Adam, Adam and Eve, right? The serpent tempts Eve with the mm-hmm. apple. Here we have Comus uh, luring her into the woods with charisma to give her a drink that overpowers her. There's these similar, right? He's little more it's a motif but yeah it it is but like structurally it's kind of the same a similar story right um she managed um anyway this character manages to stay stay uh stave this off the mask was very successful and lived on for quite some time which was unusual for a mask in fact in 1738 over 100 years later the text was used as the basis for a very successful mask by the musician thomas arne and that one ran continuously for 70 years um so Pretty much Milton's first outing, he hits, he does a pretty, I mean, you imagine if the first mate significant thing you wrote uh, 170 years later, people were still saying those words. You've already. We could, do we it. call him a playwright then? Well, I don't know if you call a person who wrote a mask a playwright. I, I suppose you do. Yeah. Hmm. I didn't read this one just because there's yeah, so much right. to read. I just kind of skipped it. So I don't know yeah. how. Okay much it's i know there are like soliloquies and that sort of thing hmm. um oh yeah and in 17 sorry and this is interesting in 1745 the composer handel provided uh, a new musical arrangement for a performance of the mask once again at ludlow castle now here's something i think that's interesting we're going to tie this into my next topic i want to get into more who is the earl of bridgewater who are these people 
are they at all interesting? Well, kind of. Let me just give you a little bit of a reading from the Neil Forsyth biography. Um, I will tell you, when you go over to the old country, you go to the UK, and the first time you have to like try to get a bank account or something, yeah. do something like that, and you go down to the drop-down list, and it's yeah. over here, it's Mr. Mrs. Doctor. Doctor. You're lucky yeah. if you get a miss. Over there, it's Baron, Earl. All <laughs> of those really? things are in there. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's okay. it's a trip. You go, okay. That's funny. What is all this? That's <laughs> just, yeah, and it's funny. As an American, this stuff just all feels really made up, doesn't it? Just like, uh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, Fair enough. Um, quote, the Bridgewater children, Alice in particular, had recently complained of demonic possession and had been treated with protective amulets and St. John's warts by the well-known physician John Napier. In a sense, then, the mask replays the mask comus that we just described replays her cure. The Earl himself and his capacity as a judge had recently given an extremely fair minded ruling at a long drawn out, drawn out case of the rape of a 14 year old girl, Marjorie Evans, by a powerful local official. This will have been in the minds of those present on this big occasion, more especially as Michael Moss was a holiday associated with public administration and justice. The lessons for the day. Uh, uh, sorry, I'm skipping down the gospel for the day. Matthew 18 denounces the man who offends against children. It were better for him that a millstone were hung about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Milton may not have known these details of the Bridgewater family when he first composed the mask, though he will probably have noticed the uncanny connections at the time of the performance. So a little bit more. There was another reason why the subject of the mask was extremely risky and needed to be handled with great delicacy. An extraordinary sexual scandal had recently afflicted the family of the Countess's eldest daughter, Anne. Her husband, the infam infamous Earl of Castlehaven, had had his servants frequently rape both his wife and his stepdaughter, who is married to his own son. He was also accused of sodomy and even worse, popery. He was ex executed in May 1630 for 1631. The Dowager Countess was now supporting Anne and her daughter. Milton made tactful reference to her role in Ar uh, 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 Arcades, but in Comus, given the subject, he had to be careful not to insult his hosts and especially not the young virgin playing the lady. So this daughter of the Earl of Bridgewater played the main role in Comus, and she was, she was 15 years old. In particular, he had to avoid having the references to rape and chastity seem ironic. So... <clears throat> On that sort of topic of sexuality, we discussed Milton as being voluntarily celibate, but let's kind of dig into this a little bit more. As I said, some scholars have suggested that Milton perhaps was homosexual, at least had homoerotic leanings. This is largely because of things he said about Charles Diodati or two uh, in letters to Charles Diodati. Though the romance in them is very, seems like very, to me, reading them, and we're not going to dig into it because there's just not enough time to cover everything, that they, they seems like platonic friendship, but in written in capital R romantic terms. It, it, to me, it doesn't, but, you know, what do I know? Um, <clears throat> what we can say is that Milton, up into the late 30s at least, so well into his 20s, is committed to chastity, to chastity. Um, he, 
he has, again, as we've said, is sort of so dedicated to um, poetry that all the other things go out the window. And he's convinced himself that chastity is uh, significant. Somebody at one point even I wrote and I couldn't verify this, so I don't want to make a big point of it, but that he was even vegetarian for a time, which seems to me is highly unusual in this time period. Um, but any, whatever the case, very serious, very dedicated guy. Um, let's read his little bit of his... Uh, not quite his manifesto, but this is a sort of a statement of what he's up to um, from this late 1630s written to um, Charles Diodati. Just finding the page. He's here. in his 20s now at this point. Yeah, he would be. Yeah, he would be in his early to mid 20s. This is during his period of um, studious reading a lot. Um, mm-hmm. What a character. This. Long hair, limited home, going to be a yeah. poet. Fresh yeah. out of Cambridge, everybody else is going to be a minister, right? Right, and we're yeah. we're writing masks uh, and hobnobbing, and yeah, right. Hmm. right. And one thing is too, he was so sort of chased after school after Cambridge that um, the biographers say even though he wrote that mask, he'd probably never been to one, which huh. is just interesting, right? Hmm. Um, okay, so here's um, from. Uh, Milton's letter to Charles Diodati in, uh, this is a little bit later. Yeah, 1637. So in this letter, he'd be 19 or so. Quote, For though I do not know what else God may have decreed for me, this certainly is true. He has instilled into me, if into anyone, a vehement love of the beautiful. Not so diligently is Ceres, according to the fables, said to have sought her daughter uh, Proserpina, as I seek for this idea of the beautiful, as if for some glorious image, throughout all the shapes and forms of things, Day and night I search and follow its lead eagerly, as if by certain clear traces. Once it happens that if I find it anywhere, one who, despising the warped judgment of the public, dares to feel and speak and be that which the greatest wisdom throughout all the ages has taught to be the best, I shall cling to him immediately from a kind of necessity. But if I, whether by nature or by my fate, am so equipped that I can by no effort and labor of mine rise to such glory and height of fame, still... I think that neither men nor gods forgive, uh, forbid me to reverence and honor those who have attained that glory or who are successfully aspiring to it. But now I know you wish your curiosity satisfied. You make many anxious inquiries, even about what I am thinking. Thinking, Listen, Diodati, but in secret, lest I blush. And let me talk to you grandiloquently for a while. You ask what I am thinking of, so help me God. Uh, I am thinking of immortality of fame. What am I doing? Growing my wings and practicing flight. But my Pegasus still ri- uh, my Pegasus still raises himself on very tender wings. Let me be wise on my humble level. I shall now tell you seriously what I am planning to do. To move into some, of, uh, some one of the inns of court, wherever there is a pleasant and shady walk. For that dwelling will be more satisfactory, both for companionship, if I wish to remain at home, and as a more suitable headquarters if I choose to venture forth. Where I am now... As you know, I live in obscurity in cramped quarters with his parents. <laughs> you shall also hear about my studies. By continued reading, I have brought the affairs of the Greeks to the time when they ceased to be Greeks. I have been occupied for a long time by the obscure history of the Italians under the Longobards, Franks, and Germans, to the time when liberty was granted them by Rudolf, king of Germany. From there, it will be better to read separately about what each state did by its own effort. But what about you? How long will you act the son of the family and devote yourself to domestic matters, forgetting urban companionships? 
For unless this stepmotherly warfare be more hazardous, hazardous than either the Dacian or Sarmatian, you must certainly hurry and at least make your winter quarters with us. Okay, so just gives us a sense of he's 19 years old and he's uh, he basically tells his best friend, like, listen, this is embarrassing, but I want to be famous. Not famous. I want to be immortal. Um, and I'm going to do that by gathering all of the knowledge that I can. Right. So uh, he okay. reminds me in his monomania of the character of the judge uh, that that with which exists without my knowledge exists without my consent. Yeah. So yeah. A little bit of that in Milton. I think I think there's some I think there's some truth to that. Yeah. He's probably a little less harsh. But in terms of, yeah, the megalomania, I, I think I think there's some real truth to that. It's very interesting. Hmm. Um, OK, so he has to be working on stuff, though, right? He writes this comus. He's got a couple other poems. Um, Paradise Lost, however, is still 30 some years away. Um, in 1637, Milton composes what many scholars consider to be his first major work. And this is the pastoral elegy. Um, I should have looked up how to pronounce this, so I got it right. Lycidas, Lycidas, L Y C I D A S, Lycidas, Lycidas, I believe. Um, anyway, this is a 193 line poem of irregular rhyme, written in English, not Latin, dedicated to the memory of his Cambridge pal Edward King, whose ship sank in the Irish Sea. This uh, is incorporated into a 1638 collection of elegies for this young man, Edward King. Um, and while most of the poems are these sort of, they imitate, they basically imitated John Donne. Those are their sort of witty and metaphysical. Um, Milton chose the uh, pastoral elegy, which mo a modern reader wouldn't realize this, but it was a completely obsolete genre when he was participant when he wrote this so it would be like it would be like right now if somebody came out with a um uh like what's a what's a famous musical from like the golden era of hollywood like guys and dolls guys yeah it's like if you came out with do guys and dolls and you weren't doing it ironically but no right irony just yeah. straight ahead yeah. Yeah. yeah people would be like wait what yeah dudes um, and dames <laughs> right a new american musical <laughs> yeah um yeah so so in in he and we'll see this too later when he writes paradise lost that was sort of an obsolete genre too like he's doing this strange thing where he's like stylistically anachronistic he's playing he, he, right with, mm -hmm. he's sort of innovating on one hand but he's doing it within stuff that we've most people have already moved beyond which is an interesting formula i think i mean i think for somebody who's trying to figure out a creative project that could be just an interesting experiment to run yeah, yeah. not to keep circling back to blood meridian but there's an yeah. interesting thing he did with the chapter headers where they uh, reflect uh, something that was done during the period, but then kind of subverts and twists it a little bit. Yeah, right. There's a right. lot of rich, creative juice out of playing with, I'll say it again, anachronistic styles, so sort of like right. old timey, strange things. Like what if you were to write a mask now? I read a little bit about it in the background, uh, yeah. Brad. Apparently it came out of a tradition where players would show up at a nobleman's house un yeah. unbidden. Probably oh. a little wink-wink on the sly. Probably a, yeah. probably a little bit like 
shall we have a mask tonight to know, right. you know, maybe kind of, you know, uh, maybe they knew they were coming, maybe they didn't, and they would show up and then perform something for the family, right? Mm-hmm. No TV, no radio, no Netflix. So here these players show up and, and then they would unmask themselves at the end. And presumably there'd be food and a tip and sure. And, and right. whatever else. What if you wrote something like that now? Right. Or like right. use that as a launching point for an idea. There you go. Now you're already, you're in right. a structure that you can play mm-hmm. with. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And you can do, there's more, there's always more to be wrung from, like, we think that these old formats are tired, but they're they're not. They still have juice, right? They all do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a reason they worked for hundreds of years. There's a reason that one performance went on for 70 years. They work. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, you know, dramaturgy is like, a, is machinery and you can, you can mm-hmm. pick it apart and things work for a reason. Structure mm-hmm. is... A big deal, yeah, fun. Indeed, Indeed. little uh, ner- little artistic nerd out there. I love it. I love Good. it. I love it. Yeah, yeah. So let me read a little bit more about this play, uh, Lys- uh, Lycides. I wish I knew how to pronounce that. I can't believe I didn't look it up. L y c i d a s. Lycides. It would be L y c i d a s. Lycidas, if you were, or Lycidas, if you were doing it in Latin with the hard c. Okay. See, so oh, yeah. and you like so we'd have to know if that's how they were pronouncing it or not. Yeah. Probably yeah. like it is. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Okay. If you'd um, like it us, if you like it us, <laughs> and you are a scholar of Latin pronunciation in early modern England, right. and you happen to know how that would have been pronounced during the period, we would love to hear from you genuinely. Yeah. Uh, T.me slash Art of Dark Pod. You can find us on the Bird website at Art of Dark Pod. And of course, we are at the website is artofdarkpod.com. You know where to find us. And truly, we welcome, whether it's on YouTube or or Twitter or wherever else, comments. If we yeah. get if we get something a little wrong, please tell us. We're we are lifelong learners here, if you that's, can't tell. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah, we also we also don't pretend to be expert experts where we're not. Uh, oh yeah, no, no, I am refreshing. I am certainly not a Milton. I am very far from a Milton expert. Yeah, this is this is like uh, yeah <laughs> so i'm doing i'm doing my best I and mean, we've got good stuff here but you're totally yeah. right we're we're not really experts we're exploring so there you, um there you go yeah. there you go yeah. yeah so let me read this bit from the biography about this about this poem <clears throat> quote the main point of the poem is a search for consolation in the face of death each possible consolation is tried out and then found wanting or partial fame for example uh which is in the poem is called the, that last infirmity of noble mind uh, fame, for example, which a young poet like Milton or Edward King might well imagine as a satisfying goal of his poetic endeavors turns out to be deferred to the next world. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, in the process of exploring the um, the theme of false or problematic consolations, Milton discovered poetic devices that he was to use with increasing force and subtlety as his career developed. One is the long verse paragraph of a regular length that invites the reader in and then troubles him, a poetic form that Milton virtually invented. We wait for the verse paragraphs to resolve themselves. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Mainly iambic pentameters, the poem also contains occasional and surprising short lines as well as an irregular rhyme scheme. Milton's musical training had made him one of the most subtle poets of sound in the language. Now, that's expressed as a virtue and and as we saw uh later t.s Eliot would sort of say that that was milton's weakness in some ways so it's interesting now i'm going to read a couple little bits from this poem because i want to get milton's voice a little bit in our ear um 
I topped off my water. Ah, excellent. Yeah, I got to stay hydrated. It's important to stay hydrated. Yeah. That is so we're sure. getting ready to head into hell. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Oh, uh, do, do, do. You I think what? we I are going to call this it. episode, Brad, John Milton, Party of the Devil. Party of the Devil. I like that. I, I like that quite a lot. Mm. Um, you, you know looking I, for your No, page? I missed the reference. That's that's no that's not a big deal. Um, yeah, no worries. There are so there's as we said there's the consolation uh sorry the um the search for a consolation in the face of death and and the various things and one's own death or somebody else's death and the various ways in which this the things that people tend to rely on don't work. There are at least two other recurring Miltonic themes that we see in this early poem. Um, the first is the corruption of the church. Edward King had died before he became a minister, which Milton sort of seems to consider lucky uh, that Edward King had managed to escape getting pulled in as a minister of the church and being corrupted by it. Um, and this isn't the Catholic Church. This is the the, the Church of England. Um and he relates the corruption and Milton relates the corruption uh, as a of the church as a, quote, grim wolf. Um, we also get a bit about hair because Milton has to talk about hair. And hair plays a big role in one of the books in Paradise Lost as well. Um, like, for instance, uh, this figure, uh, Lycidas, who is standing in for Edward King in this poem, dies, goes to heaven. And the first thing he does is he washes his hair. So it's just Milton has a hair thing. <laughs> um, okay. 1637 uh, or 38, Milton's younger brother, Christopher. Um, Milton, by the way, had a brother and a sister. So um, Anne, his sister, dies sometime in the 1640s. Christopher um, outlives Milton. Um, in 1637 or 38, Milton's younger brother, Christopher, who may have even who may have been a covert Catholic and would be a royalist during the upcoming Civil War, which is a big deal. He moves into the Milton home. He moves back in with mom and dad. And this freed up our John, who probably wasn't doing anything anyway, to uh, give up any domestic responsibilities he had and go on a grand tour of Europe, financed, of course, by his father. Sometime in here, his mother died. I don't have the year in front of me, but basically Milton's in his uh, Milton's uh, 30 uh, coming on 30. He's been living at home for a number of years. His mother has passed. His dad's taken care of him, and he's going to go on a grand tour of Europe uh, aided by a manservant, which is just traveling in style. Um, first, he goes to Paris. He didn't like France or the French. Later, when writing about education, gotta, imagined... they come together. You gotta <laughs> take them together. <laughs> well, he didn't like either. So, you know, <laughs> uh, later when writing about education, Milton imagines that when education is reformed in England, then they'll no longer have to send over their brightest to France for learning, only to have them sent back as, quote, apes and mimics. Uh Ooh. Yeah, Italy, that's shots fired. Uh, Italy, according to Milton, was much better. He stayed in Florence for five months. Uh, 
he preferred uh that's where the that's where the church is that's where the catholic church is what's going on buddy good question he really he really appreciated how the academy was set up in italy was more of a symposium kind of environment it had debates and banquets and it was much more to his liking and milton was actually quite well liked there he made a number of friends um at at the academy he also met galileo which is just fun he mentions Galileo. Galileo is the only figure who um, sort of contemporary figure who is mentioned in Paradise Lost. Um, and, you know, I really interest- missed my opportunity there. Yeah. Say what Galileo I- again. Galileo. Galileo. <laughs> Galileo Figaro. Yeah, anyway, <laughs> there we go. Um, is that the first is- time that Galileo came out, came up on the pod? I think so. Yeah. Okay. I think so. Yeah. yeah, we'll have to do Galileo at some point. Yeah. That would be interesting for sure. Mm, yeah. yeah. Um, one thing that's kind of it, it, there's there's a moment of Milton meeting Galileo at this time. Galileo's old and he's under house arrest and he's blind. Mm. Later, Milton would be blind. Milton would serve a very short time in prison, um, barely escaping much more serious charges. So there's and and for I don't want to say similar reasons, but definitely for going against the the authority at the time in, in their own ways. And so there is this way in which Milton sort of recapitulates a, a pattern that he saw in, in Galileo. Um, OK, now, as you said, why is he going to Italy? Why does he like it so much? It is very curious because Milton hates Catholics or hates Catholicism. Anyway, he's self-identifies as a Puritan. Um, but he seems to do fine in Rome. He has a little bit of a difficulty with somebody he's staying with for a while who says, hey, you know, who writes him a letter and basically says, like, it was nice having you. I would have been more hospitable if you would have not talked about religion so much. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> right. Imagine going to Rome as an early Protestant. You're just going, right. you're doing it wrong. Right. You're, you're all wrong. All wrong, wrong, right. wrong, right. wrong, right. wrong. Right. Now, where's my room and board? Right. Yeah, exactly. Put me up and. In right. bad, like mediocre yeah. Italian with a thick, thick accent. Yeah. You're doing it wrong. Right, right, Come right. On. Very interesting. Now, he did meet a bunch of prominent uh, cardinals and the like. I mean, he met a lot of people. And so he clearly I'm wasn't. I'm sure they were. He was, he was moving in a very sophisticated, highly educated yeah. circles. Right. Uh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So it, just kind of an interesting period. Now, here's something that we're, we're asking ourselves hopefully a number of questions to this but to t.s Eliot's claim that milton couldn't see he's in rome he's writing diaries and many letters and he never once mentions a piece of art now i find that rather odd personally um like if you i'm not a diary keeper kevin i don't know if you are but let's say we were and we went to rome and we were in italy for five months we don't even comment on a sculpture ever. That seems strange. Um, so anyway, someone, a scholar suggested maybe it's his Puritan iconoclasm. There's a certain, that's uh, not, and not just for religious art, but it's somehow seeping out into all visual arts in some way. I'm not sure. It's just an interesting point. Um. After Italy, he goes to Geneva, where he meets up with the uncle of his friend Charles Diodati, the guy who um, the letter to Charles Diodati is what I read earlier is sort of his manifesto. Um, here, Milton finds out that his friend has passed away in London. So um, 
this is striking. I mean, it's his best friend. He's 30-ish, and his best friend has just died. Um, sad. He's also, his first prominent poem is by, about a friend that of his that died. I mean, life is very... Um, <laughs> I mean, people die all the time, obviously, but at this time, as we're going to see, um, people are just gone <laughs> a lot. Um, and you, and Milton has to deal with that. I mean, his first major poem is about the con- is about trying to f- find consolation for death, other people's death, and your own. Um, now, when he gets back home in 1639. Um, the English Civil War is about to kick off. Now, I was going to put you in the hot seat, Kevin, and ask you to explain the English Civil War. However, I don't think I'm going to do that. Thank you. <laughs> Unless you know a bunch already. <laughs> very very, uh, very yeah, little Cromwell. Yeah. 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 Okay. 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 And yeah. The Puritans and yeah. uh, the monarchy was overthrown mm-hmm. for a period of time, but then restored. Maybe I know more than I think I do, but yeah, no, uh, I, 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 none, none of that's wrong. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, and and yeah. on my Irish side, Cromwell was a right bastard. Yeah, he was. He's yeah. not a good guy to the Irish. I don't like him. I don't like yeah. him. Yeah. Um, I don't like him at all. Um, okay. So I'm going to give you, this is important for Milton because this is the crucible in which Milton is ultimately formed. Um And so we need to know what was going on. And he ends up being very entangled in it. This is not something... Um, this is not something out happening out there for him. Um, this is happening in his life, in his world, on his streets sometimes. Um, so here's my little spiel on the English Civil War. And forgive me, historians, if I get something wrong about this. Again, I cobbled this together the best I can. I don't think anything in here is wrong, but I may be missing some key points. Um, so the English Civil War is actually a series of civil wars, and as Wikipedia calls it, political machinations, which I always love, between royalists and parliamentarians that begins um, with the Wars of the Three Kingdoms starting in 1639 and continues on into the 1650s, or in the opinion of T.S. Eliot, into the 20th century. Uh, <laughs> um, so let's put a few stakes in the ground here. So we have King Charles I. Charles I was a believer in high Anglicanism, a sacramental version of the Church of England based on Armenianism. What is Armenianism? It is a theological school of thought whose core tenet, for our purposes at least, is rejection of predestination. As you may know, the Puritan and the Calvinist strains of Protestantism took this this very seriously, basically on the flip side. Um, uh, So... In the middle of the 17th century, well, okay, when Charles tries to enforce, so he's a high Anglican, so he's he's still retaining aspects of Catholicism in what he, King Charles I, believes how it should be practiced. Um, he tries to enforce the very strongly Episcopalian model, bishops, on Scotland and create a new uniform church through the land, And the, but the Scots were having none of it. So King Charles ends up taking his forces to Scotland and over the two next two years fought an ineffective war to dominate the Scots, after which the Church of England would no longer interfere with, interfere with Scotland's religion. Kind of an interesting thing. Uh, however, in the attempt to do this, Charles I had to get uh, the new parliament to give him money, which opened up an opportunity for parliamentarians to air a bunch of grievances. 
Charles I didn't like this, so he shut Parliament down. So this is an interesting thing where it's like, yes, we have a board of elected people who helped make the decisions through inform, you know, and are informed by the people. But as soon as they start doing something we don't like, we just shut that down. <laughs> that's all just that's all just uh, uh, it's practically theater for people to feel like there's a pro actually a process going on. Right. Um, shutting down Parliament meant that he wouldn't be officially uh, criticized or censured, but he also wouldn't get his money. So funnily enough, uh, he was he was also king of the Scots. So he had gone to war. He he had to end up financing, ultimately, in some ways, financing both sides of this war, at least paying for sort of, um, uh, you know, the the various reconstruction kind of things that happened on the back end of it. Um, eventually unable to pull the money together without parliament, he had to call parliament back in. And this parliament, which is known historically as the long parliament, was even more opposed to him than the previous parliament. The long parliament instituted a bunch of new measures, particularly anti-Papist laws uh, now to push back on Charles I's suspected Catholic tendencies. Um, and one of the things they passed, parliament did, is that they could no longer be dissolved. You can't shut parliament down anymore. Okay, fair enough. Perma Parliament. Uh, yeah, yeah. Parliament uh, forever. Right. <laughs> Long live Parliament. Oh, the, the Parliament geez. is dead. Long live the Parliament. Mm. A series of extra, there was a series of extra legal correspondences and actions were also uncovered by Parliament. So there was sort of an investigation to what King Charles I had been up to. Sufi uh, significant among these was uh, um, Thomas Wentworth. Uh, the Earl of Stratford's insistence to the king that the king was outside of the law and could do anything he wanted in Ireland, right? Okay. Wentworth, first Earl of Stratford, is executed by an act of parliament in 1641 for basically for giving this advice and for other things associated with it. How'd they there do were, him? What's that? How'd they do him? Behead him? Um, I'm not sure. I think they probably hung him. Yeah. Hmm. Um. There were also Parliament enacted new uh, new laws on taxation, how money was spent, etc. Some of this was probably fair. Some of it wasn't um, this. All of this kind of came to a head when the Irish Catholics fearing a rise in Protestant power, right? Because the Catholics might not have liked King Charles the first, but he had sort of Catholic tendencies. So maybe he was better than the Parliament who hated. You know, it, does that make sense? It's sort of yeah, like the, the devil, you know. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And it's like he might two out of three times he might screw us, but maybe one out of three. We kind of, you know, other than the, this new parliament that's coming in is a problem. Was so the parliament highly puritanical, these folks, yeah, uh, okay. very Protestant and did contain a lot of Puritans mm. as well. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. So I think it's fair to say highly puritanical um, in that definition. Lively parties. Right. In that parties. definition of the Puritans as being purifying Trying to purify the Catholic, Catholic elements. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They, right. Indeed. Yeah. yeah, so all this kicked off the Irish Rebellion of 1641. Ireland descended into total chaos. Um, Parliament came to believe that Charles I supported Ireland in this rebellion. Charles I escalated this whole conversation by marching to the House of Commons with 400 soldiers and trying to arrest members of Parliament. This did not go over well, and then the English Civil War properly kicked off. Up till now, we were fighting the Wars of the Three Kingdoms. Now, uh, 
basically, obviously, maybe Parliament wanted more power and less power and less for the king. And at first it was sort of like, we're going to sh- still share this, but Parliament just wants more. Eventually it would become even more radical than that. Um, many people, excuse me, many people in the country were opposed to the king, as probably is almost always true. And uh, and most of the country, the common folk really didn't care, supposedly, according to some accounts. It's sort of like now we're like, 20 or 30 percent of people are super politically engaged and most people are just kind of don't care that's, that's kind of how it always is um throughout history um but the military and it's important to have the military on your side if you're gonna have a civil war pop off the military mm-hmm. tilted oh, yeah. towards parliament right um this led to full-scale battles in various locations around england until charles the first was captured by the presbyterian scottish army in 1646 and handed over to English Parliament, which imprisoned him. Okay. While Charles I was in prison, things chilled out for a little while. There was still a simmering power struggle between the Royalists, the Independents, the Army, the Presbyterians, Parliament, Scottish Parliament, all of that. It's sort of a power vacuum, right? Um, The king managed to drive a wedge between the Army and Parliament. So Army and Parliament had been aligned against him. He managed to kind of split them apart to some extent. until the point where the second English Civil War popped off in the summer of 1648. Wait, 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 wait. So we had one, and then there was a little, the king was imprisoned, and yeah. now we get to do English Civil War to Civil War Boogaloo. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Charles is back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's not, he's still in prison, actually. <laughs> ah, but he's, he's yeah. making moves. He's making moves from prison. He's like a mob boss in prison, mm. right? He's ah. still like, you're now you're on to something. Right. Now you're speaking yeah. my language. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All government is crime. That's right. That's right. Now, uh, this second one, again, series of battles, reversals, betrayals, mostly fought in England as opposed to Ireland and Scotland. At least that's my understanding of it. Um, there are any number of historical events in this period that we could talk about, but probably the most important ones for our purposes are the trial of King Charles I by what's called the Rump Parliament, uh, basically Ooh. Parliament under hostage of the army, uh, mm. and when Charles I was beheaded in January of 1649 for being a tyrant, tyrant, traitor, murderer, and public enemy. Man, if you're, you're chopping the, off the head of the king, it's a big deal. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh, doggy. Yeah. Now, the the after his beheading, the war continued on for a number of months until it, quote, came to an end, as much as these things really ever end, um, when the parliamentarian troops under Oliver Cromwell defeated the Royalists and Royalist Scots in Lancashire in the summer of 1649. Now, I hadn't really mentioned Cromwell throughout this because I wasn't really mentioning any individuals, but throughout this, Cromwell is rising in prominence from the beginning of it to the end. And just imagine he's just successful time and time and time again until eventually he's the most competent guy in the room. Right. Um, he's a oh, statesman. Man, I've, been, I've been there. I, yeah. I really relate to that. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, he's a statesman. He's a soldier. He's a military, military commander. Um, he became this, uh, he up to the point, like I said, he's the senior member of the parliamentary army and was on top of these things, probably the loudest voice calling for the execution of Charles the first. Like to him, it was like, we can't just win. We have to cut his head off. Intense stuff, right? Now, following the execution, still kind of a power vacuum, right? Because it literally, again, you know, who's in charge is just who's got the weapons, 
basically, right? Ultimately, in the end, whoever controls violence controls the levers. Um, and so it's not 100% clear who has what, right? And, now, and there can be uprisings and various things. Um, but eventually Cromwell is appointed Lord Protector of the Commonwealth of England, Scotland, and Ireland. He's basically a Caesar-like figure. He would reject the actual crown on two different occasions, but when he was officially appointed this, supposedly it, there, the, the ceremony was very much like a coronation. So the thing is, the English people, they, it's not like they have a bunch of different models for how to do this at the ready. Do you know what I mean? They've been appointing, they've been coronating kings for generations. So now you got this new guy and he killed the old king. So isn't he kind of the king, right? Like it's, I think that's the sort of subconscious logic that most people would have been operating on. We've always had a king here. You're the right. king now. Right. You killed the king. That makes yeah. you the king. Yeah. That's what happens. How do you think his great, 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 great granddad became king? He, he killed, killed another king. king and now yeah. you're the king. Yeah. 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 Now, but this so, is all tied up in like theological problems too. I mean, they they sort of thought of Christ as King of Kings, and it just it, go, it goes deep, deep, deep. I mean, and the sovereignty is derived from God, and because of the the King is is the sovereign, it gives political legitimacy to whatever government is formed under the King. There's a lot of like real legitimate thinking, right, uh, going right. on here, and, right? And when yeah. and when you kill the King, and half something like half the country believes that the King was appointed by God. That's a pro that's a problem, right? That's you don't recover from that. That's you know, um, yeah. <laughs> now Cromwell, um, a bit of a villain to I'd say a lot of people. Uh, uh, here's a couple things that he did. <clears throat> um, he launched an Irish campaign from 1649 to 1650 to put down English, English royalists and most importantly, Irish Confederate Catholics there. Of course, as we said, he, he did not care for the Catholic Church all that much. Uh, as part of this were a series of events, understatement, as part of this, there were a series of events such as the siege of Wexford when Cromwell's men uh, laid siege to the town and killed 2000 Irish troops and 1500 civilians and burned the town to the ground. Um there were other that's maybe the most significant one there, but there were other events like this. The overall conquest effort went on for years until 1653 and uh, which Catholicism was officially banned. Priests were killed and Catholic land was taken and given to Scottish England and English sold uh, soldiers. This is in Ireland. Very um, cool, guys. Very good. Yeah, good, good. Good going. Yeah. Good look job. at look at the West now. Look at Europe right. now. <laughs> nice now, work what else was cromwell uh he was hmm. a bunch of things but one thing is he was well, sorry, one thing unrelated unrelated to the the snackwell fortune yeah here I in don't america think this is a common yeah. misconception different family <laughs> the honeywells wait the, the honeywells the snackwells <laughs> and the cromwells yeah yeah Two of, one of these is delicious <laughs> uh Cromwell was something else, too. Cromwell was John Milton's boss. John Milton would become what we call now in corporate speak a direct report to Oliver Cromwell. Um, but we got to back up and explain how we get there. Okay. Milton, as we said, was traveling from 1638 and into 1639. And when we returned, we've got these preliminary 
uh, conflicts, the wars of the three kingdoms were just kind of starting up. Um, he started when he came back from his grand tour of Europe, he no longer lived in the family home and he moved just outside of the city of London. His nephew, uh, his nephews, John and Edward, Edward would be the first person to write a biography of John Milton. Uh, and it's quite good. It's interesting. Uh, uh, John and Edward came to live with him because Milton's sister had died, right? So he adopts the nephews, a single man adopts his nephews very interesting and he takes fairly seriously their uh, takes upon himself their education which is pretty cool and edward has nothing but good things well maybe not nothing but good things to say about, but mostly very good things to say about his uncle um he's there he's reading he's he's sort of trying to recommence his his uh studious retirement uh but you know the world's on fire around him so it's not as easy as it once was to do um he uh, wrote a number of tracks. He started writing tracks. This is when people would put out treatises and tracks and pamphlets. Um, now we use Twitter. It's not really that different in some ways. It's pretty cool to return to like writing a tract. Right. There's something kind of hardcore about that. <laughs> it would be. So nobody <laughs> will give you their home address, but I mean. Right. Still, yeah. That's the thing is how would you distribute it? You just suppose, do like but... a digital tract would be interesting. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. like I'd really, really demand, like put something out where like, you can't even download it without printing it. Like do some sort of weird <laughs> JavaScript, or I don't even know what you would do to like yeah. that. You've got to print this. It has out. to be physical. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. and it forces your printer to print 20 copies. <laughs> right. <laughs> and emails a, the link to your 20 most. <laughs> you can do a lot of damage that way. I had access yeah. in high school. I had access to uh, like an industrial grade, like a commercial grade printer. Mm -hmm. through one of the jobs I had yeah. and I found uh, on the internet you know a, a one sheet about how public schools uh, are similar to the prison system and oh, we yeah. maybe distributed two or 300 copies of those <laughs> around the high school one one day and that uh, maybe caused a few issues <laughs> I mean okay okay yeah, yeah. No, people you were, were in a great, were you were participating in a great tradition in which Milton also participated. So, yeah. I, some of the lineage. teachers were like, yeah, this is right. <laughs> They're like, yeah. the problem with this yeah. is it's not wrong. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, interesting like times. Yeah. Um, so, he's he's writing these tracks. And, and again, we have to remember a couple of things about Milton. Super intel, super smart, super erudite actually seems to like being attacked or at least likes the game likes the intellectual game of i'm in a we're in a you're right i i'm right you're wrong kind of mode right so he starts writing all these tracks chiefly at first uh, about church reform he contributes to a pamphlet published under the name schmeck which is an acronym for its contributors, which in which he speaks out against the bishops. So speaking out against the bishops is like speaking out against the king, right? S sure. But subtly, it's like speaking out mm -hmm. against, yeah. Um, Schmecticus? Schmectimnus. It's the oh, acronym. It's the, it's the it's the letters of the people's name, but sure, they're sure. like they're like right. semi-anonymous. Fun. Um, from here, after writing, contributing to this, he became Milton became more and more polemical. I think he liked playing the game of having these out a, there and people responding to them. Edge Lord, a little bit, yeah. Mm. Um, and he's and he's so he's he's writing these more and he seems to be becoming be becoming more radical. 
I think as a teenager, he was a fairly conventional. He may have had strange ideas, started having strange ideas about religion, but probably politically was, you know, maybe slightly on the parliamentary side. But he's getting more and more radical as things go on. Um, he wrote a pamphlet on Reformation in the Church, which is been refer is is vitriolic and and in the first time in public in a public piece of writing he is doing what somebody would call refer a scholar referred to as spitting. It's very it's like venomous, and he'll go and ad hominem like he does not have any problem about just attacking an individual person, and this accelerates through his life. This like amplifies in certain cases through his life. Um, he did not. This is this is key. He did not submit these tracts and pamphlets and various things to either the Star Chamber or the Company of Stationers, which were supposed to control all elements of print culture at the time. So anything that came out was was supposed to go through the official channels and they sign off on it, basically, or not sign off on it. Um, he put these were put out directly by print shops. Um, so interesting. Uh you know, he writes all this stuff about bishops. He, so he's railing hard against bishops. At the same time, 1641, Parliament passed a bill to abolish the bishops, right? So he's he's in the public discourse. How many people are reading the pamphlets? It's kind of hard to tell. I mean, I don't know how many people were reading anything at that time, really. I mean, sure, it, but again, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, he's right at the heart of power in London. He's in mm -hmm. central London. London's one of the capitals of the world. Mm -hmm. It has been for a long time. Yeah. And if you can get 500 people, 500 of the right people to read the thing that you're passing around. Yeah. That well, does and, it. And, and two things, you got to think about the numbers and population. There's, there's, I think at this time, roughly London is 400,000 people. Mm -hmm. And in those 400,000 people are the king and mm -hmm. Cromwell and, mm -hmm. you know, and the whole host of other people who have Wikipedia pages. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, so you only got a it's a fairly small network, right? Um, before suddenly, you know, maybe not the king, but it's not hard to imagine that somebody in the king's retinue was had read a mm -hmm. couple of these pamphlets. Sure. Yeah. Right? Somebody with the king's ear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So. 1641 basically he's got a career as a polemicist for a time um it's you know let's see so oh yeah here's i'll give you a uh um yeah here's somebody attacked the the or the schmectimus thing uh and and milton wrote a response to the attack and here's just an example of how he would go after somebody <laughs> quote this tormentor of semicolons is as good at dismembering and slitting sentences as his grave fathers, the prelates, have been at stigmatizing and slitting noses. <laughs> Which I don't even know exactly what that means. Like, I don't know what the slitting noses part is about, but just that's it's sort of you mentioned battle rap earlier. There's like an element of this of like, well, I am wittier than you and my attack will be more withering than yours. And it doesn't have to be intellectual or philosophically. I, I right just even. looked this up because I wanted to know, and I'm glad I did. Yeah. You look up slitting noses and you see the first thing that comes up on Wikipedia is renotomy as a punishment for adultery, Ooh. customary in early India, but also practiced by the Greeks and Romans. Yeah, so interesting. Yeah. Accusing him of being an adulterer. Right. Know? 
clever way. <laughs> Do you want to read it one more time? Read it one more yeah. time. Yeah, this tormentor, and he's talking about the attack, somebody attacking his people. His 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 homies have been attacked, mm-hmm. and he's responding. This tormentor of semicolons is as good at dismembering and slitting sentences as his grave fathers, the prelates, had been at stigmatizing and slitting noses. Yeah, right. <laughs> so he's talking about the prelates. Who are the prelates? Are those the uh, like bishops or? I, I think those would be the something in the bishopry. Yeah. Yeah. So he's accusing yeah. the 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 prelates of being adulterers and talking about stigmatizing too that's a play on words because it's it calls to the stigmata of Christ right right and and probably also it, it's a, it's got multiple meanings yeah this dude's playing on that level yeah he's <laughs> yeah, not quite sure. at, at like Jay-Z's level no like Jay, but he's <laughs> right <laughs> yeah he didn't ether this guy yeah but uh, <laughs> um no I, this... I feel like yeah okay all right yeah no but but, but he but Milton would take See, the thing is, too, in these things, Milton is always imagining himself as sort of a public figure, even before he actually is one. And he's also keeping in mind, which is the way to do it if you're trying to become a public figure, by the way. Um, And he uh, he also would sometimes in these tracks would just like go on for a page about his plans to write poetry and then like descend back into like calling out bishops or whatever <laughs> which is pretty fun <laughs> just wait and see i haven't even dropped the real shit yet you have exactly. no idea what's coming exactly exactly yeah um he also gets attacked at one point for for spending time in brothels and this is the thing about him there's no way he spent time in brothels like he may be guilty of various heresies and that sort of thing. Milton was, it would seem, uh, this is my term for it, but this is from touching on it in various sources. I think Milton was far too sexually neurotic to have been going to brothels. I think he had some kind of weird hang up. It was partially religious. It was probably partially personal. Who knows what else was going on? But, um, and Milton got this like, You've been going to brothels, and he thought, "Aha! Here is an opportunity to, for me to spend four pages defending my virtue." <laughs> right? You know what I mean? Just like, I don't even know what a brothel is. <laughs> right, right. But you could see he's having fun. He likes this he's stimulus and being provoked, and like, I'll write this, and then they'll write it back. And I'll yeah, you know, yeah. This stance. This again, not much has changed. I mean, no. you go to Politifact now, and they're yeah. they basically it's just grown adults trolling social media going liar liar pants on fire you're a liar right. you're a lie this person's a liar did you see i mean it's just right. like you say what you want about this the stakes are real and it is fun and it is entertaining mm-hmm. and i mm-hmm. imagine in this day and age too again you can't flick the radio on you can't binge netflix it's a thing to freaking do right right yeah. Hey. yeah for sure um yeah so this process is and he's he's gra- sort of gradually rising to prominence and you can almost imagine um Cromwell's rise to pol- to to prominence on the battlefield and as a military commander, and then Milton's sort of intellectual and polemical rise to power sort of happening at the same time. That would be, a, I think, a fair way to kind of imagine this. Um, in sixteen forty two, Milton gets married, which is interesting. His first wife was the daughter of a man who owed Milton's father money, <laughs> uh, oh. and had hadn't really been paying up since the 1620s um they were married they were married quite rapidly and mary powell moved from her noisy busy house with a bunch of family into milton's uh quiet apartment home that had been set up for studious retirement right so she 
Yeah. Hello, my dear. <laughs> this is the this is my man cave. Right. Right. And it's just books. <laughs> That's all he does all day. And then just and, like and just writes writes withering attacks <laughs> that go out and, and she's just like, you know, she's like a girl <laughs> from the country who's used to having her friend her family all around. True love. Um, yeah. It did not go well. Um, mm. Let me read a little bit from the biography um, about this. Um, <clears throat> yeah, quote, It is not how hard to imagine how problems developed. This is between Mary Powell and Milton. All Milton's biographers do so in their own way with varying degrees of imagination or sympathetic engagement with one or both members of the couple. Mary was young, but she had grown up in a noisy home, a country estate, not a city household. At first, Milton must have seemed attractively different, clever, deeply interesting, musical, good looking, a man in the prime of his life. But when did they have a chance to be alone together or to explore each other's difference or sexuality? Um, remember, Milton has little kids his nephews are around right and for a little while mary powell's some of mary powell's family is there too um if they did have sex what was it like milton admired women but his only close relationship had been with this charles diodati and he was dead milton had read a lot about sex and its effects in the course of his intense and wide reading but he had no personal experience so he'd never had sex at this point mary so much younger as she was was also likely to have been inexperienced um, when her friends or when her family went back to Oxford, Milton returned to his studies and teaching duties and the house was suddenly quiet. Um, one more little bit here on this. <clears throat> um, this is from this is a quote from Edward Phillips. Uh, this is Milton's nephew who wrote the first biography of Milton. <clears throat> and this is talking about Mary Powell. And he would have been there when Mary Powell showed up. He would have been a young boy. <clears throat> Quote, she had for a month or thereabout led a uh, philosophical life after having been used, uh, used to a great house and much company. Her friends, possibly incited by her own desire, made earnest suit by letter to have her company the remaining part of the summer, which was granted on her condition of her return at the time appointed. So she goes to the house. She lives with Milton. And I think it's for I might have this wrong, but it's not far off. It's either two months or four months. She lives at Milton's house. Milton's home and then she goes back to her family <laughs> um, and this causes some issues and and there are a number mm. of reasons why a one she wasn't apparently happy um two the Powells were royalists so you have to imagine she's from a royalist family she's probably a royalist in her own depending on how much she even thinks about political matters and then this guy is the most prominent blogger on the other side of the aisle. Right. <laughs> that's that's the that's how you kind of have to picture it. So her family. Yeah, like, yeah. And her dad owes his dad money and there's some sort of other weird arrangement going on. Yeah. 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 Awkward. Right. 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 Now she's, so she's from gone. Ma she's from MAGA country. Right. And he's uh <laughs> yeah. he's writing yeah. about dark Brandon all day. Right, right, right. Something like that. Yeah. Or or the yeah. opposite, you know. Yeah, sure, or vice like versa. That. Yeah. 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 Um so interesting. And and this fact that she basically just bailed on him becomes uh important to some of his writing shortly, as we'll see. But nonetheless, after you know, she leaves. There's there's the other factor going on that the civil war is about to happen, and basically everybody knows it. You're kind of you can imagine that it's just that's just tense, and somebody's waiting for that one thing to happen, right? And it's gonna happen any second. Um, 
so we need to look as the Civil War kind of kicks off Milton's direct impacts to his personal life. His wife had left. His brother, serving in the Royal Army, went into hiding in 1643 to avoid prison and wasn't seen by another member of his family for years. Um, Parliament, in an effort to clamp down on the proliferation of printing presses and, quote, prompted by threats of conspiracies, uh, suddenly passed a bunch of strict laws on writing. So they were very concerned that people might be spreading conspiracy theories or conspiracies, and they had to shut they had to shut down the printing presses. Um, let me read a little bit about this. The playbook is very old, people. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Um, quote, during the same period, religious affairs also came to a head. The Westminster Westminster Assembly of Divines was established to adv- advise Parliament. It was stacked with Presbyterians, many from Scotland, a sign of dependence on Scots troops, and oppressed the authorities to establish a national church and eliminate heresies, sects, and schisms. It insisted on the Scots Presbyterian model of church governance, highly centralized and dominated by the clergy. Independents, who were becoming stronger, argued for broad-based toleration of all Protestant sects, and some even for all Christians, including Roman Catholics. These differences gave rise, gave rise to some of the sharpest and most unforgiving polemics of the period. Intolerance could not be tolerated. In September 1643, Parliament adopted the Solemn League and Covenant, which attempted to establish a unified Reformed Church throughout the realm, and yet allowed for the king's authority, quote, in the preservation and defense of the true religion and liberties of the kingdoms. Milton soon contributed major publications to all these burning issues. And another one that he made he he contributed to was marriage and divorce. Mary Powell had left him, and suddenly one of the most important subjects amidst the Civil War for Milton to write about is divorce. <laughs> he finds it very important that hey, there, there should be ways. I, I, how's how's a man supposed to get divorced around here? I want to get out of here. <laughs> what is going on? She's already gone. Yeah, exactly. We're not exactly. Well, we're and not you can married, married. Right, right. Well, and, and you know, uh, um, for all of the, I don't want to get into debate about divorce necessarily, but there is one of the issues kind of was, so England is basically not at this time is not a Catholic country anymore. Um, and it's not even that there was prohibition against divorce. It was like there was no laws about it at all. Like, and so it became... well, there were no right, right, because I mean it was a, it's a religious institution, and in the eyes of the church, and this still continues to this day mm-hmm. in the one true faith in the Catholic Church, that mm-hmm. if you're married in the church, you cannot be remarried to another person in the church. There is no divorce in the Catholic Church. Right. The right. church has to find that and annul the marriage. It basically, they basically have to say for whatever reason, spiritual mm-hmm. reason, it it can these it, it, it can require an investigation. So right. divorce is a is largely a secular. It's like a secular right. sort of you know idea. Right. Um, right. But, yeah. but but even the so I think and and I might be getting this slightly wrong, but I think part of the issue for Milton and for other people, it the church had when the church was in. It may have been very difficult to get an annulment, but at least it was a process that could be gone through with the church gone. There was basically left with like nothing. So it was very uncertain, like what you you couldn't get annulled, like you couldn't get annulled. There was no process at all to be to be followed. And so this is clearly this is kind of an issue. Right. And you've got Milton, his wife just left. Like, what's he supposed to do? 
He can never reminds me of one of my one of my favorite <laughs> jokes. Uh, why is divorce so expensive? Because it's worth it. <laughs> have you ever heard that? I have heard that. Let's just <laughs> let's just leave that, put that in the air, and I hope everybody's very yeah. happy in all of their relationships. Of course, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so Milton writes these tracks on divorce. First, he's writing them anonymously and off license. Eventually, he starts putting his name on them, which, you know, if you're like the only person out there arguing for something like divorce, any kind of policy that like liberalizes from the old order, and you're the only person saying it, it's going to attract some attention that most of us probably wouldn't want. Um, Milton seemed okay with that sort of attention. Um Let me read you a little bit about his argument. Quote, opposed to to scriptural authority, Matthew 19, uh, three through nine, much of Milton's argument hangs on his view of human nature and the purpose of marriage, which rather than the traditional ends of procreation or a remedy against fornication, he defines as, quote, the apt and cheerful conversation of man with woman to comfort and refresh him against the evils of solitary life. End quote. Milton argues that if a couple be, quote, mistaken in their dispositions through any error, concealment or misadventure for them, spite of antipathy to fadge together and combine as they may to their unspeakable wearisomes and uh, despair of all sociable delight. Um, this violates the purpose of marriage as mutual companionship. So he's redefining what marriage is even about. Uh in as opposed to what probably people most people at the time would have considered it um this as you can imagine brought public condemnation for milton as a libertine um which uh wasn't true and not in and certainly not in his actual day-to-day behaviors he wasn't any kind of libertine um uh and yet He's he's so articulate at putting these things together that oftentimes people he doesn't necessarily find common cause with will glom onto his arguments and use them for their own purposes. For instance, some of the ranter, the ranters, there's a group of people called the ranters, which was uh, is really a hodgepodge of dissenting groups of commoners. <laughs> I'm were, in that I'm in that group chat. Yeah, <laughs> right. Right. Um, uh, it, it was a bunch of it's not really a like a uniform group of any kind it was a bunch of people who had like kind of pantheistic or antinomian ideas um they used milton's uh arguments to justify spouse swapping um um and and but here's here's yeah uh here is where we start to see milton actually having i what seems to be an influence um milton addresses the westminster assembly in 1643 um and after about divorce and not long after parliament changed the law to allow for divorces divorce in cases of infidelity or abandonment um uh which is i think he had a big say in this and i think most people would say those are you know yeah if somebody abandons you i feel like you should be able to do something about it right it depends Um, on what you understand the nature of marriage to be true, uh, right itself it's it's right. quite a quite a serious uh yeah thing yeah mm-hmm. yeah and these these things have major stakes to them the the how it's how it's socially thought of how what the rules are about it it's all very very important um and we see i think milton you know at least having some level of influence on the course of things in this regard and this would be 1643 so he's what 35 years old um 
of course, you know, Milton's perceived libertinism. Uh, you've got people on the other side just making the, these arguments he's making. They're just digging in harder. Um, many people were starting to call because of his divorce tracks. We're starting to call for even harsher control on material on, on published materials. Right. So it was like, we got to stop this guy from publishing these things. He says that if you're abandoned, you should be able to get divorced. And we can't you know, it's like uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> the well-known clergyman and documenter of heresies. That's quite a job for you. Uh, Ephraim Paget said that um, the Quote, the extremists preach, print, and practice their heretical opinions openly. For books, witness a tractate of divorce in which the bonds are let loose to inordinate lust. That was about that was about Milton. Um, okay. Yeah, because these these guys are rightly thinking, like people are gonna abuse this. It's tricky because you can't have it, you cannot have it both ways. It's right. very difficult. Right. Um right. Yeah. yeah. And anytime you try to set up a, some system, there's always going to be some loopholes in it. Like, you're right. People are going to take advantage of it. It's uh, right. I tell you what, the world really started going to hell when John Milton wrote that tractate, that tract about divorce in 1630, 30-ish something. <laughs> I can imagine we'd be at the bar. We really got to go back, man. <laughs> there we you were. That, England, that 1643. fucking libertine John Milton. <laughs> Uh, Paradise Lost is all right, but you really got to read his his tract on divorce and how that influenced Parliament, man. Because yeah. I'm a child of divorce, and because of that, that's that's why I didn't get. The, that's why the record deal fell through, right? And where, yeah. 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 I get the bar you. the get bartenders you. bartenders looking at everybody in the bar <laughs> at the bar. It's like, hmm. Huh. Hmm. Yeah. Uh yeah. but the thing is there probably were people in the pub saying things like that. Literally sure. like down the street yeah. from parliament, right? Mm -hmm. Um just now, another just another little sidebar with the drunken bass player in Kevin's head. <laughs> right. He's always in there. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay, fun. Now, be because of these attacks, these personal attacks and these attempts to lock down publishing, Milton responds with probably what most people would argue is his finest polemical work. And this is a work called Aeropagitica. Now, uh, the subtitle should tell you what it's all about. Quote, a speech of Mr. John Milton for the liberty of unlicensed printing to the Parliament of England. Excuse me. This was published in November of 1644, height of the war. Now, let me read a couple bits about this. This is a really important text because it's well, you're going to we'll see here in a second. <clears throat> uh, uh, d -d 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 OK, <clears throat> quote, contemporaries such as the leveler William Walwyn. The levelers was another one of these sort of ideological groups. You had a whole carnival of different ideological groups sort of trying to find purchase in this this like chaotic system that chaotic system that was falling apart basically yeah, it's um, like the warriors but they're you know writing letters yeah. to each other right 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 um william wallen had read enough montaigne to have learned the importance of toleration from his religious skepticism milton now went even further in aeropagitica quote a man may be a heretic in the truth is the startling paradox he there formulates 
uh, here's another quote from it. And if he believes things only because his pastor says the, so, though his belief be true, yet the truth he holds becomes his heresy. Interesting. Okay. Milton challenges his readers to exert their own judgment and goes even further than Paul, who in 1 Corinthians argued that, quote, there must be heresies among you. Milton refers to the heresy hunters of the early church who, quote, discover more heresies uh, than they well confute, uh, and that oft for heresy, which is the truer opinion, quote, end quote. This last phrase gives the essence of Milton's reason for allowing a wide variety of opinion to flourish. Um, yeah, now there's one other bit, um, that I read the bit about books. I feel like there might've been one other bit. No, no, we'll come to it in a second. Um, so this basically, if you want to boil it down, basically what this Areopagitica comes down to, and it's a long piece, he's arguing for freedom of speech. He's basically saying like, you know, you can't shut this stuff down. We have to be allowed to talk um, and for and he's making many of the same arguments for free freedom of speech that we hear now. Um, whatever your feelings about them are, he would have been pretty hard, especially at this time, hard on the side of people should be able to print whatever they want. And we certainly can't be submitting our writings to the state before it becomes publicly available. Um uh, otherwise, you're, you're ba- yeah. So I, I think everybody's already. It, it's interesting. It's not that John Milton is the first person to make any of these arguments, um, but he perhaps articulated them as well or better than anyone had up until that t- up until that time. And again, he's ri- he's growing in prominence, and he's writing this in the heart of the English Civil War. You have you know, and it's it's. Um, it's in it's been influential for a long time. I'm just going to read a couple things from the Wikipedia just to give you a sense of the influence of Aeropagitica. Okay. Uh the United States Constitution, which includes the prohibition against prior restraint or pre-publication censorship is a direct reference to John Milton's Aeropagitica. Prior restraint. Uh, you can't yeah. uh, I'm free. <laughs> How does it what does he say in, uh, at the cafe? <laughs> I don't remember exactly. <laughs> I wish I could rattle it off. But yes, yeah, yeah, Walter yeah. Sobchak's talking about prior the, the, the Supreme Court has roundly rejected prior, <laughs> prior restraint or something. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. So funny. Yeah. And uh, Milton may have even, fra- I mean, uh, he didn't come up with the words prior or restraint, but I think he may have coined that as a phrase, like um, as like a legal term. Yeah. Um, the connection between John Milton and Walter Sobchak is underreported, underdiscussed. <laughs> Yeah, that's we're a thesis doing topic here. for some of you out there. there. You if go. you wanted that's to write it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, Milton argued that the prohibition against prior restraint is necessary uh, uh, because to threaten censorship prior to publication would have a chilling effect, effect on expression and speech. It'll put the cop in your head. Uh, or, uh, yeah, um, here's another thing uh, where we still see its influence. That quote from earlier... Um, a quote, a good book is the precious lifeblood of a master spirit embalmed and treasured upon to purpose to a life beyond life. That is uh, over the entrance to the main reading room of the New York Public Library. 
uh, the Supreme Court of the, of the United States referred to Aeropagitica in interpreting the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. Uh, the court has cited Aeropagitica by name in at least four cases. Most notably, the court uh, cited it in the New York Times Company versus Sullivan to explain the inherent value of false statements. Uh, the inherent value of false statements. Think about that little, little turn of phrase there. Uh, the court cited Milton to explain the dangers of prior restraint in, in Times Film Corporation versus City of Chicago. Uh, later, Justice Douglas concurred in Eisenstadt versus Baird, citing the pamphlet to support striking down restrictions on lecturing about birth control. Finally, Justice Black cited Aeropagitica when he dissented from the court's upholding of restrictions on the Communist Party of the United States against the free speech and free association challenge in Communist Party of the United States versus the Subversive Activities Control Board. Um, so anyway, this is something that's, you know, up into almost contemporary time, people are relying on Aeropagitica almost as though it's a legal document at, in the American system, right? Um, so very, just very interesting. Um, let's see. Oh, in this time, I too, did not know this. And hmm. that is fascinating. Yeah, I am on right? the Aeropagitica website, the Wikipedia right now doing yeah. a little bit of reading. Yeah, if you see something interesting that I kind of glossed over or just didn't say anything about, let me know. But but fundamentally what's worth knowing here is it's like this burning statement in favor of free speech in particular in writing. Um and influential to this day, influent influential at its time even. Um he's also at the same time writing some other things. He writes a a a, a, a treatise on called of education which i briefly mentioned before let me see if i can i think i have this uh highlighted here um a little bit about his attitudes on education so you can kind of imagine what's in this of education treatise but this is from the Forsyth biography <clears throat> and this is a. Uh, this is really more of a description of how he was tutoring his nephews and he would start to tutor some other boys as well um but it's also obviously you know, part of how he wrote about what an education should be like. <clears throat> Quote, education began with topics based on the senses, ancient texts about agriculture and geography, then the natural sciences, such as astronomy and physics, then the practical sciences of architecture, engineering, zoology, anatomy, and medicine. Gradually, the students would also be reading the poetry of nature, such as Virgil's uh, Georgics and Lucretius. Soon their studies introduced them to moral philosophy, Plato, Cicero, Plutarch, but mingled with readings of scripture. They read choice comedies and tragedies, too, for relaxation and learned, quote, at any odd hour, the Italian tongue. After some politics and law, they moved on to the climax of logic, rhetoric, and poetics. The program sounds extraordinary, perhaps, and indeed has little to do with modern systems, but there at least one institution known to me, the biographer, uh, Bard College in the USA, which tries to follow a pale variant of such a curriculum, introducing... Um, students via Latin and Greek to everything from mathematics to poetry. Milton's educational system is, like most of his work, based on an ideal, but that does not mean it is entirely out of reach. Edward Phillips, the nephew we've mentioned a couple times, um, confirms that this was more or less how the program actually went. Um, it has also included some physical exercise before lunch, music with and after the meal, plus two hours of riding and military activity, swordsmanship or fencing before supper. Young men so prepared should be ready to govern, to fight, and to farm. And 
I think that's pretty good. Yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of uh, goofy looking anonymous accounts on the bird website that are probably nodding along right now. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. It's yeah. not a it's not a bad program for homeschooling. Like mm. at at three o'clock, we try to stab each other. That's, that's <laughs> right, right. Having been having been a fencer, uh, mm. yeah, chess with knives. It's a very good. Yeah. It's a very. It's a, it's a great sport. I'm sure I would. I've Trains never the mind. Would, You'd be very I good. At, maybe, maybe we'll get. Maybe we'll get some fencing gear we'll on one fencing. day, Brad. Yeah. That'd be yeah. pretty fun. That would. Be yeah, fun. I'm. Yeah. I'm. I'm in my 40s now, though, yeah. man. That is a young man's is game. That right? I tell you what. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, you know. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Um, 1645. I, I, I. Yeah, 1645. So 1644 was that of education. 1644 is also where Aeropagitica comes out, and then 1645 he publishes a collection of poems. So imagine he's one of the most prominent writers of pamphlets and tracts and things like that. He writes this huge statement for free speech that's still referred to sometimes now. He writes this big thing on of education that was, though it wasn't perhaps influential in the notion of uh, it actually lasting into current systems. It was certainly read by a wide number of people and and thought about and discussed. And then he publishes a, a collection of poems in 1645 while the English Civil War is raging all around him. Now, uh, let's see. So, yeah. Oh, and here's a good here's a good example of here's a good example of some things that Milton liked to do. Again, remember he likes being attacked. He likes the game of you tried to get me. Now I'm going to get you. Um, he puts out this collection of poems, 1645, and, uh, there's an engraving used for the frontispiece and it was very botched for whatever reason. Um, it makes Milton who was again, as we've said, a fairly handsome man. Um, it makes him look old and weird, frankly. And Milton didn't care for this. And he got his revenge by adding some Greek to the frontispiece knowing that the man who engraved the frontispiece didn't speak Greek or read Greek. Okay, so let me give you this real quick. So uh, this is what he wrote in Greek. Uh, where did it go? Uh, quote, you would say perhaps that this portrait was drawn by an ignorant hand once you look at the living face. So friends, since you did not see the likeness, laugh at the botched effort of this incompetent artist. That was on in the frontispiece of his own book. Damn. Try, like, yeah, assaulting the artist who made the cover art, basically. Wow. <laughs> I feel yeah. like this guy like, would fit in. I feel like <laughs> our our world, I can see how our world emerged that, you know, from the milieu that this guy was moving in and from his to a degree mm -hmm. from his influence. Mm -hmm. We really don't have, and it's it's ironic because it does sort of point toward predetermination. Although, of course, mm -hmm. I am a I'm a firm free will believer, uh, sure. both yeah. uh, sort of you know theologically, but also just like on my own, I've sort of mm -hmm. thought my way to that conclusion as much as you can. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, it's just sort of like the the world that we inherit. Like, no, literally, some goofball in the early 17th century had mm -hmm. a stick up his ass and long hair. Yeah. And kind of like with a, not that large a number of people invented right. the modern world. And and even the, our own style today, you could sort of say, see how this guy would this guy would have a killer Twitter account. He'd be dangerous. I was just going to say, like, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, we've talked 
we think a lot of, I mean, we're very online writers, right? So we think about this and we've had, I think, other subjects we've covered who may have been b- better posters in terms of wittier or mm-hmm. or something. But I don't think anybody would have loved the game as much as Milton of of discourse and polemics. Like he would have loved being on Twitter during any yeah. election or any whatever. Sure. Right? Yeah. yeah. And he probably would just love getting a ratio out of right. something, like ratioing <laughs> somebody to oblivion. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 Huh. It's so interesting, man. Yeah. Now, um, sometime in uh, late 1644, 1645, Mary Powell came back. Um, This is likely. Now, this wasn't because she was still in love with him. Uh, (laughs) Probably what was happening with with the tides of war changing, Powell's, who were royalists, thought she would be safer living with Milton than living with them. This is most likely the reason for this. Uh, In July of 1645 shortly after mary powell came back the entire powell family came to live with the miltons uh milton didn't like these people they had owed his family money for decades they had basically you know trying to put yourself in the mindset you 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 ask for this woman's hand in marriage the father says okay and then two months later, she's back with them and he's not like his responsibility. The father would be to send her back. You know, there, there's like they're just not following any of the conventions. They owe him a bunch of money. Now they're suddenly showing up at his door and they're like, OK, we live with you now. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just a very crazy situation. Um, yeah. So <clears throat> uh, now it was around this time uh, that. Now, sure, while while they were while the Powells were living with Milton, the patriarch of the Powell family died. Um, and due to this and some additional um, uh, legal action, basically, Milton got most of the Powell estate, but there was hardly anything left. Um, uh, but and just, say what you know, say what you want about the modern world or the contemporary world. I mean, at least you aren't owing your neighbor your mortgage. Right. I mean, it is. And you could go to jail for owing money, too. Yeah, they they, they could send you over. They'd send you to Australia or to, uh, you know, to the Americas. uh, Yeah. God forbid. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So here's here's about around this time um, from quoting from the biography. Quote, unusually, we do have some uh, direct evidence as to how Milton felt during all these events. That is the Powell family living with him, etc. A letter arrived unexpectedly from Milton's Italian friend, Carlo Dati, and Milton soon answered it, uh, though in general, as he had admitted to Diodati, he was not a good correspondent. <clears throat> he, complain- he complains in indirect terms about the Powell entourage, saying, quote, daily sit beside me, exhaust me, torment me as often as they please. He talks about the recent deaths, Diodati, his own father, his old friends, Alexander Gill and Catherine Thomason and the general con- uh, chaos of revolutionary London. And yet, in the midst of all that, he says, quote, I am forced to live in almost perpetual solitude in an unusually revealing mark. He misses his Italian friends and especially the carefree life he had led there. It had been a tumultuous time, but he had still, he proudly tells his friend, been able to publish his poems. So, yeah, just a little peek into Milton's mind and a, and a direct correspondence. Now, back to the war stuff. Because Milton, as I said, Milton is rising in prominence as the war is raging, as Cromwell is approaching Lord Protectorate, protectorship. Um, 
The king was brought to trial in January of 1649. <clears throat> Milton was likely in attendance at the Great Hall in Westminster when this happened. In fact, Milton's own personal lawyer presided over the court that put King Char Charles on trial. Um, during the prolonged proceedings, Milton wrote his work, uh, another famous polemical work called The Tenure of Kings and Magistrates. Uh, it was basically a defense of the army and the existing government now that Charles I was off the throne. Uh, and further, he justifies the right of the people to execute a sovereign. Um, I'm not going to read any parts of it, but let me just give you the full title of this thing and it will tell you pretty much what it's all about. <clears throat> this is the full title of the tract. The tenure of kings and magistrates, colon, proving that it is lawful and, lawful and hath been held so through the ages for any who has the power to call to account a tyrant or wicked king and after due conviction to depose and put him to death. If the ordinary magistrate have neglected or denied to do it and that they who have late so much blame deposing are the men that did it themselves. Okay. He's calling for the head of the king in published materials. Um, couldn't be any problems doing that, right? That that's not gonna that's not gonna be a problem. Okay. Well, if you come at the king, you best not miss. That's, <laughs> that's what right. I heard. That's right. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. <clears throat> Let me read this bit. I hope everybody's enjoying this episode on the life of John Milton that the yeah. great Brad Kelly is walking us through. We're what, mm -hmm. probably like two and, two and a half-ish half hours into this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I've already learned a ton. Good. It's a Good. real pleasure to do this, Brad. How are you feeling? Let's let's check in real quick before you proceed. How are you feeling about oh, uh, right now? Yeah, I'm good. good. I'm good. You know, there's there's a lot. The thing about this one is it's um it's interesting. What's interesting about it to me, there's a lot of things, is the the amount of things that Milton is first at doing, and we're gonna see this even more in Paradise Lost. And then also the way in which though we don't get a lot of personal anecdotes about him, you can start to see the kind of person he was through what he does he's doing and you can see clearly how he would fit into contemporary society like yeah like it's enough the same that i can see milton in 2023 and how he would how he would roll and hmm. it's interesting right hmm. and, and you see the you know we talk about uh, the country's never been as divided as it is now i'm not saying it's not divided but like literally these people were calling for each other's heads like yeah in, so, in print in print and yeah. they had the means to do it right yeah in another yeah. Uh, universe in, in an alternate reality this episode is called john milton the eternal anglo <laughs> yeah let's not do that but i did <laughs> continue where where yeah. were we i'm really enjoying yeah. it i'm gonna i'm gonna top yeah. off my water again but i am okay. listening and Good. uh yes um, i got a quote i got a quote here so we're great the king is about to be executed Quote, the king was executed on January 30th, 1649, an eyewitness records a dismal universal groan as the axe fell. Char king Charles met his final moments with dignity as he knelt on the black draped scaffold with outstretched arms. Milton's young friend Andrew Marvel described the scene in these famous lines. This is Andrew Marvel, not Milton. 
While round the armed bands did clap their bloody hands, he nothing common did or mean upon the memorable scene. But with his keener eye, the axe's edge did try, nor called the gods with vulgar spite to vindicate, vindicate his helpless right, but bowed his comely head down as upon a bed. <clears throat> uh, bravely, though the king faced his in end, England had abolished its monarchy and started the first modern revolution okay now here's another thing first modern revolution milton was also the first person of any standing to defend the re regicide in print but as uh, but the new republic was instantly vilified throughout europe and a new book supposedly written by the king king himself dominated the public space so this is another part of the issue okay you got rid of your king Oh, shoot. Turns out that everyone, every single person in Europe thought that was a bad idea. <laughs> uh, and now you're trying to, but you still got to, it, it's it's just like now in many ways, you still have to trade with some of these people. You still have to be on good terms. You don't want France invading. You don't want the sense that there's a power vacuum and if some strong, you know, some str somebody could strong arm their way in and, and take over. It's very, it's very delicate times, even in the sort of regional community right um <clears throat> now uh this regicide thing <clears throat> is put milton on the shit list of many thinkers for many many years uh uh even those who generally respect his work right even paradise lost respecters say eh, that thing with the king though that was a bit that was a bit much <laughs> um samuel johnson uh deep into the 1700s in his uh, book Life of Milton uh, was incensed by this aspect of Milton's life, especially when Milton later criticized harshly, but funnily also, um, this book that the king had supposedly written while he was in prison. Um, this book that the king had supposedly written was called Icon Basilique or the king's image. Um, this was circulating in 1649. Um, and again, as I said before, widely read on the, on the continent and Milton wrote pamphlets or tracks or whatever we want to call them, basically making fun of it. <laughs> um, he wrote one called Iconoclast about basically just bashing this this text that had been written. Uh, and we're, we're going to get we're going to get to that in a little bit, because now with the king gone, dead, um, the popularity of the king's book that he the, the book that the king had written required somebody to mount an articulate, powerful, and effective response. So the new government had to, they, they couldn't just let this book be out there without a counter to it. And there was nobody better to do this than Milton. Um, and so they basically hired Milton to write this response. Milton would be the uh, first contracted employee of the government after the english revolution whoa he was in it <laughs> he was in whoa it. Yeah, yes yeah now let me give huh. you a description now this this job writing this thing led to other things um <clears throat> uh where is it so um da, 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 da. um oh so he, they, they hire him to write this response to the king's book. His his response is called Iconoclasties. But then they also realized that, hey, hold on. We got like kind of a genius on our hands. Maybe we could maybe he's more useful to us. Um, 
Uh, this is from the biography. Um, it was also uh, his mastery of Latin that led to his appointment two days after being hired to write Iconoclasties as, quote, secretary for foreign languages, or in his alternative title, the Latin secretary. The salary was some amount of money a month. It doesn't matter because we don't know what that means anyway. For the first time, Milton had a real job. Within a week, Parliament abolished the House of Lords and the monarchy. Milton became, as I said, the first contractual employee. His job was to communicate with the rest of Europe, the rest of Europe in the midst of the crisis provoked by the death of the king in the new state of England as a commonwealth. He had to protest the attacks of exiled royalists, including the murder of Parliament's envoy to The Hague, um, a man who had taught history at Cambridge, and also the murder of the ambassador to Spain. So he's gone. I just track what has happened for, to him now. He is popular on campus as a college kid, but he never really went anywhere with it. It's a world-class education, but he all he did was resign himself to his personal directed course of study. He becomes an increasingly prominent cultural commentator, polemicist, and uh, controversialist, and a kind of a minor poet. And now suddenly he is um, way up in the revolutionary government after calling for the head of the king or justifying the death yeah, while killing of the king. Right. It's a, mm, yeah, it's an interesting arc. And you try to imagine that kid, when he was young and his dad's trying to tell him basically to get out of the house and get a job and less than 10 years and it's about 10 years later, he's. God, his, he's sitting in the same room as the most powerful people in the country. Um, it's just interesting. Um, now, there's a few issues with him taking this job. One, he's 44 years old, and he's, so he's getting a little bit older, and he's going blind in one eye. This is going to get worse. As I said before, when he writes Paradise Lost, he's completely blind. Um, this is the other thing. Despite his general you know, for the time, sort of liberalism, calling for toler tolerance, except for Catholics, um, wanting the printing press to the print uh, press to be free, um, people to be able to get divorced and people to have more autonomy. He, you know, believing in this sort of utopian idea that people are capable of self-rule. This new government wasn't exactly an egalitarian utopia, as you might imagine, right? They might have said a lot of nice things in public, but there were issues for sure. Um, really, what you've got is the monarchy's out and now a bunch of other people who want power are in. In some ways, probably for the average person, the, the difference probably might have not even been that big really between the two um the you know stuff starts stops blowing up for five minutes maybe while the new government's figuring things out um you know milton probably had more in common ideologically with people like the levelers and the ranters than he did with somebody like cromwell uh these groups were basically populist liberals they were committed to popular sovereignty. They wanted extended suffrage. They wanted equality under the law and they wanted religious tolerance. At this time, these are all things Milton is into. Um, uh, but during the wars, Milton's, uh, Milton's politics and the levelers writings were criticized by much of the same people. So he had common enemies with some people who ended up imprisoned in the Tower of London. And 
it's not clear exactly why Milton wouldn't have been, but we're going to get there. The thing that I wondered as I'm reading this is he if Milton gets appointed to this position is does he know how dangerous this is like personally, right? Like, yeah, okay, you and a bunch like because it, it always it, it just calls to mind the fact that like, again, the government just is whoever happens to be in the control room right now. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's really who the they're just a bunch of people in a room. And if a bunch of people want, like, if a strong enough force wants to be in that room and kick you out, then you're gone. Right. So does Milton know how dangerous this is and how how easily he could lose his head at any moment? It's not totally clear. Yeah, I was just thinking that. I mean, he must be aware, but he's yeah, it's hard to say Mm -hmm. he He's a long way from the Cambridge pub talking trash to right. the other students. Yeah. 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 And yeah. that's the that's the arc that I found most interesting is you can see it. There's the wit and the intelligence, but also like the public prominence happening in those part those parties. And he just keeps playing that game. It's basically playing that same game. It's it's you attack me, I attack you. Oh, I can make a smarter argument than you, so I'm right. These people should And then eventually you're like, "Oh crap, we're the, we're in charge now." <laughs> like uh yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, hey, did you see what happened to the last guy? Right. Yeah. Yeah, if I remember right, that guy got his head chopped off. <laughs> um uh, yeah. <clears throat> hey. Now, uh mm-hmm. he yep. had to Now here is a great irony. He got another assignment. The writer of the Areopagitica, an enormous statement about the freedom of speech and especially about prior restraint, he was assigned by Cromwell's administration to be a censor, (laughs) or as Forsyth calls him, a spy catcher. Um, His job became to approve of publications. (laughs) Um, Now, irony. Yeah. Irony is rich. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, it seems that he was willing to let stuff he disagreed with pass. Um, He let pro-royalist publications come out. So it seemed like he was trying to live up to his principles. But it is interesting that, like, suddenly this is his job to be the guy to do it. When, in his opinion, it shouldn't be happening at all. Very strange, irony, ironic situation. Yeah, in a way, that's the guy you want the position, though, because he's thought deeply about it. And hey, put your money where your mouth is, buddy. Right. And and that and that may have been his justification to himself is like, listen, they're going to do that. They're going to have this position, whether I want them to or not. If I'm here, maybe I can actually care. Like, yeah, like what you're saying. I'm the right guy for this job because I'm not trying to repress things for ideological reasons. It's interesting. Now. <clears throat> we're going to talk more about his blindness now. Um, he was blind in one eye when he was appointed to the, uh, brought into the government, 1649, 1652. Um, he's basically entirely blind. This is from either glaucoma or from cataracts. Nobody really knows for sure. Um, on March 29th, 1652, his vision finally goes According to legend, it was the same day as a total eclipse of the sun. Who knows how true that is? I'm sure that's the date the eclipse happened. Whether he actually went blind on that date is another matter. Um, He refers to it, what he could see, he refers to as, 
quote, pure black marked as as if with extinguished or ashy light. So that's what he's seeing all the time now. Um, he's, uh, okay. So a few weeks after <clears throat> he, uh, a few weeks after he goes blind, his daughter, Deborah is born a few days after that. Uh, and by the way, I should have mentioned, and they're going to come up more later because in the after dark, we're talking about Milton's relationship with his daughters, Mary Powell, his first wife had given him, I think four children. Uh, after his daughter, Deborah was born a few weeks later, Mary Powell died. Um, and I think shortly after that, his son died. But anyway, she, when she died, she left him with three children, including an infant. Um, uh, and he's blind, uh, which is, I'm just trying to imagine that. Right. Um, he blamed for the death of, uh, his, his son, he blamed, quote, an ill-chosen nurse um, and probably blamed himself for basically putting his son in the hands of a nurse who is not equipped to uh, take care of him. Um, yeah, let's read his sonnet on blindness. <clears throat> um, yeah, so it is interesting to think, I mean... I don't feel like this episode has been particularly dark yet, but I feel like this is a moment where it's like, oh man, this is a hard life, actually. <laughs> like, I know he's a trust fund kid and all of that, but um, this is this is a difficult situation for anybody. <clears throat> um, okay, this is called Sonnet 16, and this is basically about his blindness. <clears throat> Quote, When I consider how my light is spent, ere half my days in this dark world and wide, and that one talent which is death to hide, lodged with me useless, though my soul more bent, to serve therewith my maker and present my true account, lest he returning chide, doth God exact day labor, light denied. I fondly, I fondly ask, but patience to prevent, that murmur soon replies, goth, God doth not need either man's work or his own gift, gifts, who best re bear his mild yoke, they serve him best. His state is kingly. Thousands at his bidding speed, and post or land and ocean without rest, they also serve who only stand and wait. Okay. Um, now, in attempts to cure his blindness, Milton would subject himself to a range of procedures, none of which worked. This included various potent medicines. This included bloodletting by making small incisions to his eyelids and around his eyes and letting them bleed. Um, Ooh. Ooh, that doesn't sound yeah. good. Ooh, I don't no. like that. No. Ooh. No. And you know, you know that that blade isn't clean. Mm. No. <laughs> mm. Um oh, yeah. I want to be the guy who cleans the eye blade. Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh. yeah. Now <clears throat> you can imagine at a time like this that for a man who had any number of enemies as Milton did and was going blind and was a public figure. A lot of people basically said that his blindness was God punishing him. Now in public, Milton sort of laughed that off and kind of said that that was ridiculous, but in private, he wasn't quite so sure he suspected he'd had some um digestive trouble as well and later on he would have very serious gout um 
but he had some digestive trouble and he believed for whatever reason, possibly a doctor told him this was the case, that it had that the digestive trouble had led to the blindness and that the digestive trouble had started because of something he ate. Um, so eating something that he shouldn't have eaten leads to blindness. There's again a sort of a biblical allegory there, though, right? This concept that he has eaten something he hasn't and now he's sort of doomed. Now, he's going to make efforts to justify his blindness and figure out a way in which this blindness is actually the grace of God and part of paradise lost and is an attempt to sort through that. And we'll get to that sort of when we come to it. Um, let me read real quick part of, excuse me, part of a letter he wrote to a doctor about his blindness. This is while he's publicly saying he's sort of publicly laughing off the idea that, uh, God struck him blind because of his her his heresies and for you know going against the king and all that. Um, but this is what he's saying to his doctor, if I have it. Um, Got right, And he's like in his late thirties now. Um, he would be what's this? This is 19, 1652. So he would be so he'd 40, be older, 44. Yeah, forty four. So kind of an old man at this point. A little bit, in, like in, yeah. in 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 that time, a little yeah. bit. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. He's he's getting up there for sure. Mm. Um, yeah, the plague knock you out at any day. Yes, yeah. yes. So, are you, are you telling me that he does he live to see the great fire? I guess you have to tell me. He does. Okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah. Let me read this bit from this letter. It's it's long. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, <clears throat> quote. But I must not omit that while considerable sight still remained, when I would first go to bed and lie on one side or the other. Abundant light would dart from my closed eyes. Then, as sight daily diminished, colors proportionately darker would burst forth with violence and a sort of crash from within. But now, pure black, marked as if with extinguished or ashy light, and as if interwoven with, with it, pours forth. Yet the mist which, is, which always hovers before my eyes both night and day seems always to approach, be approaching white rather than black. And upon the eyes turning, it admits a minute quantity of light as if through the crack. Although some glimmer of hope, too, may radiate from that physician, I prepare and resign myself as if the case were quite incurable. And I often reflect that since many days of darkness are destined to everyone, as the wise man warns, mine thus far, by the signal kindness of providence between leisure and study and the voices and visits of friends, are much more mild than those lethal ones. But if, as it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, why should one not likewise find comfort in believing he not, cannot see by eyes alone, but by the guidance and wisdom of God? Indeed, uh, indeed, while he himself looks out for me and provides for me, which he does, and takes me as if by the hand and leads me throughout life, surely, since it has pleased him, I shall be pleased to grant my eyes a holiday." So he's trying to he's trying to justify he's trying to find a way I think what most people do who survive losing something like your eyesight or whatever you try to find sort of the silver lining in it or find ways to psychologically deal with it right and and we definitely see Milton doing that but it becomes I mean it's a it's an important part of it's an important part of paradise lost as well um let's see uh yeah, um, I think we'll talk more a little bit more about. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about um, 
okay there's one there's one more public fight that milton has that's good pretty good all right so um as i said there's all these groups like sort of scrabbling for whatever little bit of power and influence they can they can get ranters quakers levelers muggletonians fifth monarchists the proto-communist diggers all these other people they're all holding meetings they're all disrupting public space Milton actually was trying to encourage Cromwell to tolerate all of these groups as long as they weren't Irish Catholics. He basically thought, hey, they should be able to have their say. Um, but it was for Milton getting ugly trying to hold to the the virtues of Aeropagitica, right? The the free speech absolutist kind of attitude. Um and there was still very vigorous debate about the regicides. This this killing the king never went away as an issue and the fact that milton was in fate had been in favor of it um there was a widely read tract sometime in the mid 1650s called reggie sanguinis clamor that targeted milton specifically um, about the regicides likening milton to the cyclops basically calling him monstrous deformed and sightless funnily enough Milton mistakes who the screed is actually written by and spends the next couple of years just dogpiling the wrong person in public. Even after his friends are like, Milton, dude, John, that's not who wrote this thing. This other guy wrote it. Milton just carries on writing these assaults and printing them and sending them out into public. Um, uh, at one point, he says... Um, the how lucky the fish were in the market that they they had a bunch of paper that they would get to be wrapped by which was this guy's writing he's basically saying it, it's best use of his writing this other guy's writing was as fish wrappers for fish in the market um also milton used his contacts in geneva because he knew people in geneva to get dirt on this guy alexander moore who again did not write the attack on milton and yet milton just kept going after him and Milton apparently knew the guy didn't write it. He just delighted in going after this guy, apparently. Um, Milton uses contacts in Geneva to get dirt on this affair that Alexander Moore had had with a servant girl and then publicly blasted, put him on blast for that. Again, because he had thought that Alexander Moore wrote this screed against him, which he didn't, and yet he just wouldn't give up the fight. So. Damn. Yeah, wow. very like he didn't dog it. And it's it, yeah, it's, and it's, it's like he had it's fun this with it. Monomania, yeah, 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 yeah. You would not want to be on the other side of his pen. No, not at all. Because you're gonna get bored of it. He's gonna still be going. <laughs> you're like, I don't care, man. Um, okay. Now here's another kind of something that sort of been lost in this this talking about him, you know, becoming sort of a bureaucrat or whatever we want to call this position. He's still committed to poetry. Um, there's just, I think, the sense that we, we read earlier about he wanted to do what he thought was in the public good. Um, and I think he probably saw his opportunity here to actually participate in something. And and who knows how much exactly he agreed with Cromwell on. Um, but it was his opportunity to be in the room and maybe help guide some things. And some people have said that Milton writing, um, you know, Milton wasn't just responsible for writing letters to the continent, just dictating whatever Cromwell said. Many people suggest that um, Milton was somewhat of a silent architect in the foreign policy decisions of the Cromwell administration, which 
makes sense. You've got that this doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, yeah you got this super smart guy writing the letters. I mean, just just let him do it. I don't know. What are we going to tell him? So, um, just just pretty interesting. Um, sixteen uh fifty six, he remarries a woman named Catherine Woodcock. Note that he would never see her in person. I just think that's a relevant detail. She was twenty eight. He was forty eight. Um, she was apparently indulging. Age in- gap. Yeah, definitely. For the bingo card. <laughs> yeah, 20 year, 20 year age gap. Um, she apparently was very good with the children, with um, the, his children from a previous marriage. Um, Milton gets a dedicated assistant. So the Cromwell administration gives him a dedicated as- assistant who is the young poet Andrew Marvel, who was a good friend of Milton's already. And this frees him up to work on some other stuff he wanted to do. For instance, write the history of Britain. Um I debated how much to go into the history of Britain, and I've decided that we're going to kind of just gloss over it. It is an attempt to write the history of Britain, which up until that time had not really been attempted. Um, Milton was probably one of a handful of people who had read widely enough to actually do it. Um, But it's interesting the fact that he, you know, he's blind. How is he doing any of this stuff? Mostly he has an amanuensis. What is the word? Amanuensis? Amanuensis, I think. When you have a person that you read to and they they do the writing, they do the typing. Oh, I don't. I, I'm not familiar with that word. I think yeah. it's amanuensis. I think I'm pronouncing Amanunsis. that right. Amanuensis. Yeah, I'm looking it up. Yeah, look it up. Make sure yeah. I'm not, I'm, I'm not uh, mispronouncing it. Amanuensis. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. A literary or artistic assistant, in particular, one who takes dictation or copies manuscripts. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So he yeah. would have a number of these. They would be sometimes they were former tutors, uh, uh, students, uh, former students of his. Um, later on, he would have his daughters read to him when they could. And famously, um, he would have them read him uh, maybe Latin and supposedly Greek. And um, he basically never bothered to teach them Greek. So for hours at a time, one or the, one or the other of his daughters would basically just have to make the mouth noises that correspond to the letters on paper for hours. They didn't know what it meant, but they knew the letters and how it was supposed to sound. Oof. And he would he would he would have him do that for hours. Could you imagine just like you had to go read you had to go read Chinese for three hours to your dad who you don't really like every day. Like what? It sounds terrible. That sounds, sounds like terrible. a chore. Yeah, yeah that doesn't yeah. sound like good fun. And of no. course, we're in England. We're in London. Yeah. It's raining all the time. It's right. probably it, drafty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He can't tell that it's getting dark. Well, light the candle. Right. Light a candle. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. What an yeah, adventure John Milton yeah. is having, and he hasn't even begun. Paradise Lost. Paradise Lost is not even started. He at this time he knows that he wants to write a great epic poem, poem, but he believes it's going to be about King Arthur. Eventually, he okay. So he, his mind. so he moves from this sort of pagan theme, although the, the Arthurian legend is sort of mixed up with Christian stuff. But yeah, I think fundamentally, it's like a, about Arthur's supposed to be a pagan king. Yeah, uh, yeah, and the yeah. same with the mask. It was sort of like these pagan yeah. themes. Yeah, but then finally he settles on the the great subject yeah interesting yeah um i'm gonna run through a few things here before we get to paradise lost because there's a couple interesting points but we're not going to dwell for too long on anything any one thing 
February of 1658, his new wife, Catherine, gives birth to a girl, a new baby girl, but she dies almost immediately. Uh, oh, she dies three months later because she's still weak from labor and the infant, the new infant daughter also died. So Milton has had two of his children die. Two of his wives have died. Um, this wife, he actually seems to have loved um, and wrote some sonnets or poems, too. We get I, I basically no writing like to no kind of romantic writing about Mary Powell at all. Apparently um, he writes sometime in here, he writes D uh, the doctrine of Christianity, which is a big, long theological uh, treatise that is sort of rediscovered in the, it's not never published in his lifetime. It comes out sometime in the 1820s. Um, I kind of debated how much to talk about this, but I actually think the more interesting theological document is Paradise Lost. So I think we'll just kind of focus our energies there, but know that he wrote a massive doctrine of Christianity book. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm fully, I'm fully expecting for you, for us to get to Paradise Lost. You've got three or four bullet points. We'll move speedily on (laughs) and we'll get to the after dark for Patreon. Right. (laughs) <laughs> patreon.com slash art of dark pot if you appreciate the work that goes into these podcasts please support us we are trying to grow something there's yes. an article going around right now about how the artistic directors of theater companies these these uh hack regional theater companies even during covid were being paid salaries of a quarter of a million dollars nine hundred thousand dollars at the public what? and how artists are not getting paid creative people are not getting paid and this this author it's something in the washington post i just a little sidebar here yeah um monica byrne is her name she's making the case that we've got to fund artists directly well that mm-hmm. can you imagine what a what your average small theater company in a in a town like uh, i don't know like saint paul or, or detroit could do with one person's salary per year devoted just to making work a quarter of a million oh dollars you could do incredible things that's one person's salary at one of these over you know bloated dead right. institutions so and mostly so that person can stand around at cocktail parties and tell people they direct this yeah they're correct and yeah. and look yeah look fashionable i have no doubt yeah. that some of those artistic directors are very earnest and very genuine people but they're caught up in a system that everybody knows it's dead and dying. So what we're talking about with Patreon for Brad and me is direct material support for a couple of working artists who are also making a podcast that hopefully you like and appreciate. Mm -hmm. It's not that hard. If you're, if you're enjoying this, if you listen to one, two, five, 10 core episodes and you haven't gone out of your way to chuck a buck on Patreon or now to go and I don't know, throw us whatever you think it's worth. Call it value for value. If we've given you value, throw something our way. Because Brad and I, this consumes a lot of our lives. This is not (laughs) the kind of prep that Brad has done for this. Doesn't happen overnight. He's not doing two days of prep and then Mm -hmm. dropping a a four or five hour banger, thoughtful banger on John Milton. It -hmm. takes weeks of thinking and reading and all the rest of it. So if you value that, Put some put a put a dollar value on it and actually back a couple of people who are doing it. And that yeah. is patreon.com slash art of dark pod or PayPal through artofdarkpod.com. What are we talking about on the after dark, Brad? We are gonna talk more about uh Milton's relationship with his daughters. It gets very mm-hmm. interesting. There's a hot debate about where Milton's money is gonna go. Mm-hmm. And we're gonna talk about what happened uh one drunken night to Milton's bones. 
I'm really excited. That'll be on the After Dark <laughs> one final time, patreon.com slash short of dark pod. I'll also say we love all our listeners. And if your your economic situation doesn't let you, you know, you don't have any extra money to go around, that's fine. Go and five star the pod. Five star it on uh Spotify, on iTunes, leave a nice review, yeah. share the podcast with your friends. We can all pull together to make the culture a little more a little more of an art of darkness type culture, a yeah. culture that thinks about arts and letters and John Milton and his crazy influence <laughs> on Walter Sobchak from yeah. the big Lebowski. <laughs> right. Where else are you going to get this kind of, this kind of conversation? I don't think it exists. I think that mm. we're the only ones doing it. You're listening. You've made it this far in this episode. Thank you. I hope you enjoy the remainder of it. Brad, take it away. Yes. So in uh 1661 sorry in 1660 sorry let's back up a second 1658 cromwell dies his son takes over his son's not fit to rule two years later king charles's son king charles ii returns to the throne and now we have to remember milton has worked works for the new government milton had called or had justified the execution of the new king's father. This does not go well. In fact, Milton, at one point, when they were essentially seizing the, the throne, um, seizing the king's um, estates, Milton had been, they'd said to Milton, the Cromwell administration said, hey, if you want to pick out a couple pieces of art out of the king's hall here, go ahead, take that home. You want that sculpture? Take it. So literally, Milton had you know plundered treasures from the king in his home right whoa and now oh, and now is, charles ii is here is back electric and, boogaloo right you right. you <laughs> kill you killed my dad yes not whoa. good no real this is like a movie it is milton goes into hiding he knows how dangerous this is now now it's real right john milton becomes gone milton i'm out of here <laughs> I'm hiding. Yeah, yeah. That, 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 when we write the biopic, that'll that's what'll be what it's called. Yeah. Gone Milton. Gone Milton. <laughs> I like that. Oh boy, that's funny. Um, who who's gonna play John Milton? Who would play like ooh. blind John Milton in hiding? Yeah, in, I don't know. And he's like, what? How old is he? Like forty well, fifty? He would have been fifty eight. He's he's uh sick. No, sixty. So he's like 40, 42. No, no, mm. no, no. What would he be? He'd be 52. Sorry. 52. Um, yeah. So in his early 50s, blind, not in particularly good shape. You know, their diet isn't great, you know, all yeah. those sorts of things. So he's just kind of withering. Yeah, um, we can't get Philip Seymour Hoffman for obviously a reason. He would have been. An artist we have to we have to cover. What about yeah. Vince Vaughn? Can Vince Vaughn play? Vince Vaughn. <laughs> that would be pretty <laughs> I'm just like kidding. I don't know. Now we're making an imaginary yeah. movie. Yeah. But yeah, this is fascinating, man. Yeah. Now, the parliament, the new parliament, I, I didn't give all the reasons why the, the king returned to the monarchy. But let's just say that after the Cromwell administration, Cromwell dying, his son taking over and running in a very ham-fisted manner, the people were calling for for the monarchy to return parliament it was suggested in parliament that milton be put to death it almost didn't get enough it didn't get enough support to actually be enacted but his books were publicly burned um and 29 of 29 other people who participated or supported the regicide in one way or another were put to death uh, milton ends up serving a couple of months in prison and when he comes out 
he basically has no money anymore because they'll just take your money, right? But again, government is just who has control of violence. So if they want your stuff, they just take it. Um, yeah, I mean, and if you were involved in a movement that chopped off this guy's dad's head, yeah, if only your money is getting messed up, yeah. you're almost kind of dodging a bullet. Yes, like, at yes. least you have your head. Right, right. Stakes be high. Yeah, and this is this is how mad they were. This is how mad the new monarchy was. In 1661, they dug up the bodies of Cromwell and a few others, including Milton's former lawyer, the guy who ran the trial of the king, paraded them through the streets, cut off their heads, threw the bodies into a common hole, and then the hangman placed the heads of these figures, including Oliver Cromwell, on poles outside of Westminster Hall, where they remained for 13 years. That's, I think I knew about that. What? Yeah, that's yeah. metal. That is that's metal. what you get for coming yeah. at the king. Right? The return of the monarchy. Yes, we yeah. are back. Yeah. yeah, and the new monarchy would be a good name for a band. Ah, wouldn't it? <laughs> would the be. new monarchy it would be a good monarchy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple other things as we're approaching Paradise Lost, 1663. Milton marries his third wife, a woman named Elizabeth uh, Minshall. This is a 31-year age gap, according to Milton's nephew, Edward Phillips. This one oppressed Milton's children uh, in his lifetime and cheated them at his death. Oh, so, no. 1665, a plague that kills one-fifth of the population of London. 1666, the Great Fire of London 13,000 houses or more burned along with any number of buildings. A big deal. Apparently not a lot of deaths, but you can imagine the 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 instability and the the economic impact that such a thing might have. Um, the next year. So imagine this. The, these historical events, 1665, plague kills 20% of the population. 1666, Great Fire of London. 1667, Paradise Lost is dropped. Um, so this is what's going on around, you know, this is what's going on around him. Um, Milton is now safe from being persecuted criminally. He's sort of paid his dues, but he's, you know, he's pretty far from being, um, at the right hand of, of the most powerful, you know, executive power in the country. Um, he's sort of kind of mostly broke living off in a house outside, you know, sort of outside of, outside of town. Now, what is Paradise Lost, everybody? Okay, Paradise Lost is an epic poem in blank verse um, consisting of, uh, some people say, there's different printings. Excuse me. Some had 10 books. Some have 12 books. Um, a second edition followed in 1674. That's the one that people read now usually is the 1674, an adaptation of the 1674 edition with the spelling corrected and whatnot. Um, the poem cons uh, concerns the biblical story of the fall of man, the temptation of Adam and Eve by the fallen angel Satan and their expulsion from the Garden of Eden. It also concerns the war in heaven and the population of hell. It is properly called a theodicy, which is an attempt to justify the ways of God to man. So Milton at some point had decided that what his great epic would be would be, well, here's one thing. Why didn't he write a he, he, initially he'd wanted to write when he was a younger revolutionary, he wanted to write a nationalist epic. Arthurian legend totally makes sense, right? 
But you have to recognize his position in the 1650s, especially when the king comes back and all the chaos that happened when Cromwell was in place. Even then, I mean, he had his issues with that. And then the king returns to Milton at some point. There wasn't a nation worth writing a nationalist epic about. All It hadn't worked. The whole thing was a folly. And so you're not going to write something celebrating your nation when in your mind it's a broken dream right mm. um so mm. so that's kind of what led him to write this instead um now a couple things about the style <clears throat> it is arguably the first narrative poem in english to not rhyme which seems normal rhyming poetry is a little awkward to us now even if it's not in a song um but this is the first english poem and not to rhyme yeah like like at that period you go to the poem man uh-huh. and yeah. you say hey poem man <laughs> right poem ma'am write right. me a write me a poem yeah for my lady and yeah. you expect you expect him the poem man to come back and say lo the english rose yeah Half blown her nose right, 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 upon right. the yeah. the Dilly Dales, yeah, <laughs> on her way on the road to Wales, right? Yeah. So it all yeah. it all right. rhymed. You heard I I made up a rhymey. That was poem. great. That was great. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. I could do this on the fly. <laughs> I'm a trained writer. I have an MFA. <laughs> it's got to be good for something. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the Dilly Dales are, but I, just, I came up with it. But and yeah, and you, so in this case, you go to the poem, the poem man. Yeah. yeah. And he comes back and he's just dropping yeah. no rhymes. He, and you're like, right. I what? I want yeah. my rhymes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, there was a, it was a, so between uh, the fact that it didn't rhyme and then he also, he wasn't the first person to do this, but he went hard with it with, uh, what's called enjambment. And for people out there who don't know what enjambment is, basically it means when you don't have an end stopped line. So can, the convention would be to end each line with a comma or a period. Um, enjambment is when it continues on to the next line before you get that, right? So there's no clear pu- uh, punctuation or it's more that well, it, it crosses over to on the line break on the page. It can be, it can be anywhere. It can be elsewhere on the, elsewhere on the page. It can be in the middle uh, of a line or something. I got right? you. Um, okay. and, and, you know, part of this is, is he's trying to maintain some degree of iambic pentameter. I mean, that blank verse is basically iambic pentameter that doesn't rhyme, um, so he's doing it for those purposes. But as soon as you start doing enjambment, um, the interesting thing that you start to be able to do that you can't do as well when you've got end stopped lines. And I'm sorry if this is boring people, but this is this is actually, I think, relevant stuff to know to get a greater understanding. This is nuts and bolts poetry stuff. Um, this is why we're doing this pod. So don't right. apologize for doing this. We do have... <laughs> some degree of standing and understanding about sure. this. So. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not a big, I'm not a poet really, but I know a little bit. Um, hmm. But what happens when you start using enjambment is you get to set up surprises within the clause of a sentence. So you get to the end of the line and the reader anticipates that the meaning is building towards one thing. And then when you cut to the next line, it it sort of switches things up on you. It can go in a different direction or you can read it without reading to the next line. And it means one thing. But when you move down to the next line and include that, it means a second thing. It allows for a certain an added degree of multivalency that 
available necessarily when you're end stopping lines. Anyway, Milton is using this hard and it's not like he invented it, but maybe nobody before him had used it to the degree that he uses it. and he's playing games with it. Um, the rhyming thing is so prominent. The, the fact that it didn't rhyme was so prominent that in a later edition, he had to write basically an, uh, a, a preface that <laughs> this is a little bit overstating it, but it's kind of funny to think about it this way because it's sort of what he is. That is basically said, listen, I know it doesn't rhyme. I'm not stupid. It's not supposed to rhyme. <laughs> That's basically the argument. Of the thing. Well, he even makes a little bit of a joke at the top. I mean, I'm looking at it right now. I found it yeah. online. And yeah. he even in the first, I guess, what do you call it? The first stanza. Mm-hmm. Uh, things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme. Mm-hmm. So maybe he's aware. He, he's he's totally saying, aware. Yeah, yeah. he's is this prose? Am I rhyming? How, right. Am I being? I'm being a cheeky little boy. I'm calling the muse, humbly calling the muse. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Now, um, a couple other things, just on generalities, and we're going to get into some of the specifics of this thing. Um, and I want to return to the fact that his there's there's some discourse on the birds website the other day, and I may have fomented this as hard as my meager influence allows about style versus substance um i'm of the style is substance and substance is style school a little bit more there's nuance there obviously um milton is not doing this i'm not rhyming i'm gonna enjam i'm gonna break pentameter from time to time he's not doing that just for uh either laziness or just for fun he's making a point and uh, with it and we're going to talk about that a little bit in some specific instances but first a couple other things about this poem he claimed that he was visited by an angel each night she told him exactly what to say and he woke up and he got his amanuensis into the room and said write this down i did not know this yeah i did not know this this is this makes me think of swedenborg Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I did yeah. not know that he claimed this was inspired by an angel. Right. right. And it's and it's funny if you read some like modern sources, like con- very contemporary sources, like if you read that um why you should reread Paradise Lost from the BBC that we mentioned, they'll say, uh, Milton claimed that most of this was inspired in a fever dream. No, he said an angel came to him. You like you can't. Just because we're a secular society, you can't they're pretend. Com- they're, com- they're communists, Brad. Right. So, I mean, you know, it's, it just, it's okay. You can't. That's what he said. Like, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, you can well, decide that really angels aren't that real. Was, yeah, right, right, but, right. But, he, but, and this is a book about angels. So right. it seems germane. Right. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, and this is why, this is this is the point when I said very earlier that um, one, depending on how one looks at this, and I'm not making an argument for this, I'm just kind of throwing it out there as a concept one could argue if they wanted to that paradise lost is an actual religious text not a text about religion but an actual religious text depending well, on is, if you believe again reminiscent of swedenborg where mm-hmm. swedenborgians they take that stuff pretty seriously right. he had revelation yeah yeah. Hmm. yeah exactly exactly now um okay <clears throat> We're going to run through, I, I'm going to, I'm going to, this is, uh, Kevin, I'll tell you, the challenge was how, how many, how much time do we spend on Paradise Lost? I read the thing. Um, amazing. You poor son of a bitch. I grueling, mean. Grueling. Grueling. Hard. 
hard. fun, hypnotizing. How many pages is it? It's. I mean, it's almost this entire book. I mean, it's God. not that many. It's probably four hundred pages, but it's. You got. I had to read a lot of it together. Yeah, you got to read it twice and maybe take like two or three pages a day. Yeah, methodical. You're not going to read it like you read No Country for Old Men. Or yeah, you know what's uh, fascinating about this, and I will let me give my and I'll tell you to write. This is the most difficult reading experience of my life. Reading Paradise Lost. Um, I'm not ashamed to admit that. One thing I did notice, though, the longer in an individual session. The longer I stuck with it, the more sense it made. It was like I would open it to a page and I'd start and be like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, I cannot follow what he's talking about. Four, five, six, seven pages in, it's starting like I'm starting to be able to follow it much more clearly. And then if I put it away and come back the next day, the whole process starts over again. It's weird. It's like it's pulling you into another language and it takes a minute for your brain to switch into that mode and you can kind of maintain it for a while but yeah it's a very interesting Mm -hmm. experience um anyway um okay so let's get let's actually get in oh i just want to point out something so remember we were talking about his stylistic um innovations or breaking the rules i want to point out the first um i think it's the first is it the first line um of man's first disobedience and the fruit um the one thing he does he does in the first line so this is purportedly an iambic pentameter you had to write something we're gonna read the entirety of paradise lost in this episode aren't we (laughs) yeah yeah it's the only way to do it Kevin. Um, do like an andy kaufman thing can you imagine Oh God! I 70 do hour podcast. I do it. Um, you imagine, that would that would be the the funniest thing we could possibly do right now, though. It would be to commit to. In any case, yeah, it would get some listens. Um, <laughs> I think the, the first, bounce rate would be pretty high. But yes, go on be. about the first line. Yeah, um, I'm going to just read the first couple lines. Of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree, whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe. In this first two lines, he breaks several of the rules of what would be expected of him to write, which is a, a end-stopped, rhyming, iambic pentameter poem. He breaks rhyme, he enjams, and he breaks strict pentameter. Um, and what I think he is doing here, and he talks about this in his sort of apology where he talks about it rhyming, is he's basically saying... Um, those conventions have their value, but they also are constricting. They are limiting the ability for us to actually fully use this language to do the things that it can do aesthetically, conceptually, philosophically, and even religiously. And when we, again, we think about Milton being among the men who invented modern English, this is a, this is like, a volley in or a this is this is a attempt to push it forward a little bit we don't have to do everything in iambic pentameter and make it rhyme there's other stuff we can do i just think to us none of these things seem radical right because it's two it's 2023 right you can make a poem about anything and it doesn't have to have any structure to it at all and nobody Um, will read it (laughs) 
<laughs> right right yeah now, i am joking poets yeah. please people, please continue people will read it. continue on poetry. people will read it yeah. i love poetry yes yeah. we're shouts poetry. out to tom will's new poetry. book pale townie read that please um i uh, jest i yes. jest of course yeah um, we are poetry respecters on this pod or else we wouldn't bother to do x yeah. number of hours on course john milton uh book one so i'm just going to tell you some a little a few details about not maybe even each book, but book one is about the rebel angels following their failed revolution. Satan has tried to have a revolt in heaven against God. God kicks them out, sends them to hell. Um, mostly this book is kind of about setup. It's interesting that the battle has already failed rather than it being during the battle. Apparently this is a epic, a sort of a trope in epic literature. Um, um, uh, interestingly, you do get Milton put in arguments for each book. So there's actually a pretty good summary for each book at the front of them in later editions that Milton himself wrote. And they're very handy. Um, it's good to what I liked to do as I was reading it. And I suggest I would suggest this to you read clearly read those before. Then you read the book and then go back to the argument and read the argument again, just to it sort of seals it in what that whole book was about. Um, okay. Uh, there is, um, yeah, okay, I'm going to read a little bit, give you Satan's appearance. We're kind of thinking about this whole idea that Milton made Satan um, uh, sympathetic or an interesting character or something. Milton, Milton, in large part, invented the modern conception of what Satan is as a personality, and he does it in this book. Um as a Wears character leather electric yeah. guitar <laughs> yes yes cool at parties um, bit of a bit of a problem at the yes. hospital yeah <laughs> yeah all right let me, want, read, let me read a little bit show of show up on your on your deathbed yeah go ahead this is a uh, book one line 281 oh this is another thing that milton did first milton published this with the lines numbered not every line but like every five or ten or whatever Nobody had ever done that before, except in like ancient, like if you had an old poem and you were like collecting it, you would, you would publish it with the, but no new book of poetry had ever had the lines. And this is Milton's, I think Milton's statement of like, this belongs on the same shelf as Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen, as Homer, as all these things. That's the, his way of telling you that. Um. Anyway, here's Satan. He scarce had ceased when the superior fiend, that's Satan, the superior fiend, was moving toward the shore, his ponderous shield, ethereal temper, massy, large and round. Behind him cast, the broad circumference hung on his shoulders like the moon whose orb through optic glass the Tuscan artist views. The Tuscan artist is Galileo. At evening from the top of Faisal or in Valdarno to descry new lands, rivers or mountains in her spotty globe, his spear to equal which the tallest pine hewn on Norwegian hills to be the mast of some great admiral were but a wand. He walked with to support uneasy steps over the burning marl, not like those steps on heaven's azure and the torrid climb s'more on him sore besides, vaulted with fire, nathless he so endured, till on the beach of that inflamed sea he stood and called his legions, angel forms, who lay entranced, entranced thick as autumnal leaves. Um, that's how it feels to read, uh, 
some of this stuff. <laughs> it's juicy and it it's got recognizable characters we all know from the Bible, Adam, mm -hmm. Eve, Satan, Jesus, yeah. Yeah. The, the various angels. Yeah. There's a lot there. Yeah. yeah. Now, as we get into book two, the 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 demons are arguing about what they should do. They've been kicked out of heaven. They used to be angels. It was, I think, a third of the angels fought. The other two th rebelled. Um, and uh, Satan later tells them that half because he is trying to make an argument. He wants to encourage them. But it was really a third because um, Satan is lying to everybody all the time in this book. Um and uh but they have this argument and it's great it's this really cool it's it feels like um it's it's a great argument between three i think three or four i think there's three primary arguments one is that we basically just take our licking we don't really do anything um uh one is that we basically beg for forgiveness the problem with that is if we do that and even if we are forgiven and brought back into heaven we'll just be brought into the same circumstances that we rebelled against what's the point of that one is that we build, we turn hell into heaven on our own. We're here. We're angels. We can probably do this. And then Satan's is like, we, we just stay at war. It's war all the time. What are you talking about? The revolution never ends until it's over. Um, and this is sort of disputed about how this is going to be handled. It's one thing that's really interesting. Many of the fallen angels are actually, um, pagan gods like mm. are named pagan gods mm. now this mm. isn't milton isn't the first person to do this justin uh justin martyr and tertullian had similar ideas that the various greek and other pagan gods were um demons basically um but milton kind of populates this this space with um moloch and belial and mammon right these are the these are the fallen angels um it's just just interesting stuff now Satan hears from one of them that there is a new planet out there and that God has populated it with a couple strange creatures, human beings. And he's decided that this must be a weak spot for God. And he's going to go do something. And Satan elects himself to fly across chaos. It's a great scene. I'm not going to read it because it's you got to read the whole thing and it's kind of long. But there's this great scene of him flying across chaos to the gates of hell to escape. There he encounters these allegorical figures, sin and death. He's just repulsive, like Lovecraftian figures. And apparently death is the offspring of Satan and sin. And he's like informed of this in a very strange move. And then um, Satan breaks out of hell. That's book. That's book two. So book one and two, you know, you got Satan um, has busted out of hell. He's on his way to go do whatever he can to the humans in order to to further his revolution. Again, revolution. Think about what Milton was part of. Just politically. right. I can. I'm already hearing all of the echoes yeah. of it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Now, book three is uh, in heaven. Um, God talking about how basically god is sitting there he's just created mankind the garden of eden the creation story has already happened and he's basically says to his son it's never referred to as jesus christ because that sort of hasn't actually happened yet but it's god's son is there beside him um and it's implied that it's going to be jesus but it's not yet um and he god basically says so adam's gonna eat this fruit <laughs> It hasn't happened yet, but God knows that it's going to happen. 
And there's an interesting conversation about predestination versus free will. And it's like, well, how is he freely choosing if you already know what's going to happen? I mean, that's a that's a that's a fascinating theological conversation. And one that I think is a philosophical question, one that I think is will is worth taking seriously and trying to figure out where you stand on it. I, I think that's a worthwhile enterprise. Um, he God at one point says, I created man sufficient to have stood, though free to fall. And I think that's how a lot of people interpret that whole thing. You have free will, um, but the consequent there are consequences to doing the wrong thing. And if there weren't consequences, would it really be free will, right? Are you, would you? So there's a lot going on. All of this is happening in this in this paragraph. Now, this is the kind of interesting thing that might be somewhat heretical. Milton's move here: the son convinces God to accept Adam and Eve's repentance right? So it's the son who does this. Um, um, and God says, yeah, this sounds like a good idea. And he says, I will place within them as a guide, my umpire of conscience and to the end persisting safe arrive. So here's how we'll fix this. I'll put my voice in their head just a little bit, just a little bit, just so they can hear me when they're about to screw up. Right. Um, interesting. Doesn't, doesn't, um, doesn't completely cancel out free will, right? Just because you've got one other thing that you're hearing doesn't mean you don't have free will, but it's it's narrowing your possibilities a little bit, maybe. Um, now, as soon as God has promised that he's going to do this, he says, but hold on, uh, man disobeying breaks his fealty and so losing all. And basically, God says there was a deal. And they were supposed to follow me and they didn't. And that must be paid for. It has to be. And how is that going to be paid for? By the sacrifice of his own son, right? Um, so interesting. Uh, let's see. Book three. Oh, oh, sorry. Another thing goes on. Book three, interestingly, I think, is Milton tells his reader that he's blind. Um, he invokes a muse in book three that is going to give him the holy light by which he will be able to write this volume. He's constantly invoking muse. And in fact, Milton or the narrator who we take to be Milton is sort of a character in this. And it's certainly the the experience of writing the poem is an experience that is shown in the poem happening. It's a it's a it's part of the structure of the poem is the poem att the attempt to write the poem itself, which, you know, again, there's a lot of things about sort of like postmodern literature that that people can, were convinced were was newfangled and a lot of it had already been done. Um, <laughs> and this is definitely fourth wall. The writer stops to say, oh, you know, I'm blind, but if this muse would just help me and, you know, um, it's kind of interesting, the stylistic things that he's up to. Also, another thing that he does really interesting is that every once in a while, God says something in a in a, 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 a tense that doesn't quite make sense. Like it's the wrong tense. And the common scholarly opinion on that is, well, for God, there really is no time or at least not the way there is for us. So that's things that's pretty pomo. They would call that pomo and clever. That's mm -hmm. clever. Mm -hmm. Right. I think by postmodern, sometimes they just mean clever. <laughs> That's true. Well, cleverness 
by itself is ni- is neither a virtue nor a vice, I don't think. I think it's just a thing. I think it's good to be clever sometimes. Yeah, neither but... is postmodernism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> um, book four, <laughs> Satan comes to Ethan. We'll just move deep, back. deep thoughts on the pod. <laughs> we're getting we're getting into the punchy hour here. Uh, book four, Satan comes to Eden, at, sees Adam and Eve, creeps up to Eve's ear in the night, and is run off by the archangel Gabriel. Okay, let me give you a quick, dis- well, I don't know how quick it is, but a description of Eden from the book. Um, which am I in? Book four? Book four to 13. Book four, line 213 to 245. Um, where am I? Right here. <laughs> in this pleasant soil, his far more pleasant garden God ordained out of the fertile ground he caused to grow all trees of noblest kind for sight, smell, taste, and all amid them stood the tree of life, high eminence, blooming ambrosial fruit of vegetable gold, and next to life our death, the tree of knowledge, grew fast by, knowledge of good bought dear by knowing ill. Southward through Eden went a river large, nor changed his course, but through the shaggy hill, passed underneath and gulfed, for God had thrown that mountain as his garden mold high raised upon the rapid current, which through veins of porous earth with kindly thirst updrawn, rose a fresh fountain and with many a rill watered the garden, thence united fell down the steep glade and met the nether flood which from his darksome passage now appears and now divided into four main streams, runs diverse, wandering many a famous realm and country whereof here needs no account, but rather to tell, he- to tell how, if art could tell, how, f- how from that sapphire fount the crisped brooks rolling on orient pearl and sands of gold with mazy pendants under our uh, sorry, with mazy error under pendant shades, ran nectar visiting each plant and fed flowers worthy of paradise, which not nice art in beds and curious knots, but nature boon poured forth profuse on hill and dale and plain, both where the morning sun first warmly smote the open field and where the unpierced shade embraced the noontide bowers. Okay. All right. Um, now here's hypnotic. one thing. Hypnotic. It is, yeah, and yeah, I can I can see the influence effect. on Cormac and on mm-hmm. on modern prose and language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, they now here's one thing that's interesting, an interesting theological challenge for Milton that he has to deal with here, trying to represent unfallen Eden. So you think about these things, trying to represent. He'll run into this trying to represent or depict Eve, for instance we're fallen you kevin and i we're fallen everybody's fallen milton has fallen how do you depict eve's nudity i can't get up right go ahead (laughs) how do you depict eve's nudity when adam and eve would have experienced each other in an unfallen state right so how do you balance like is it erotic is it sensual like what is it this is something you'll see Milton's sort of trying to sort his way through in this poem. Um, now, there is, let me give you a line. I got I got a shout out or, or at least pay um, sort of due attention to the fact that there is an aspect of this poem that is arguably, um, I don't know, sexist, I guess. 
Um, let's see if I can find the exact line. It's line 299 in book four. Um, is that right? Oh, yeah. Um, they're talking about Adam and Eve and says, Milton says, he forgot only, she forgot in him. Right. Um, and there's several references to the fact that Adam is the um, sort of the superior sex in one quality or another. Um, but Eve is also shown to have virtues as well. So it's not a clear cut case, but I think Milton is being mostly conventional in his depiction of this relationship between man and woman. I don't think he's doing anything crazily radically, you know, quote unquote liberal. Um, uh, yeah. So I just need to put that out there. Um, let's see books five through eight. Um, okay. So book five, Eve has been talked to by the devil, by Satan and Satan has been run off and she recounts this dream that she had to Adam. Now the archangel Raphael, the aim, the messenger or the healer is sent by it down by God to inform Adam and Eve that they are in danger and to tell them that they are not to eat the fruit. Right. Um, and it's interesting. I don't think it's part of the biblical story that they're told they're in danger. I think they're just told not to eat the fruit, but I could be mistaken. Um, Anyway, in so doing, Raphael tells, recounts the war in heaven. Uh, and this is told at a level of detail that we hadn't seen up until now because the poem Paradise Lost begins um, after the war in heaven has failed. And now Raphael, we get Raphael's perspective on what happened. Um, also during this testimony, which goes on for like there, a good quarter to a third of the book is basically Raphael talking to Adam and explaining how everything is, how the heavens were made, how the war in heaven went, you know, what else is out there. And this is where we get a lot of Milton's um, sort of more precise theological notions. Um, we get uh, uh, Milton's uh, ex deo theory of creation as opposed to the more orthodox ex nihilo, that God made um, Adam and Eve and the world from some sign of pre-existent matter from himself rather than from nothing, um, from the void, um, which, you know, I guess pick your, choose your battles on that one. I don't, I don't know how people feel about ex nihilo versus ex deo. Um, uh, but interestingly, this makes it so there's basically nothing that is not matter. So, so Milton is, uh, I think what people call a monist, in this case, he believes that he doesn't really believe there's such a thing as a distinct, a soul distinct from the body, um, which is probably not a popular opinion amongst his religious contemporaries. Um, yeah. Um, oh, also just an interesting note. Uh, uh, Raphael eats normal food, human food which is kind of interesting. And there's a lot about eating in this book in Paradise Lost. And it calls to mind not only, I mean, obviously eating the the apple, but there's other instances of eating and they all seem freighted with a lot of importance to Milton. And it recalls to us the fact that Milton thought he went blind because he ate something bad, right? So this is very, Milton's, this is a metaphor that for Milton that is philosophical, theological, poetic and personal and biological somehow something about violating some rule even if you didn't know it was there um okay moving on um 
Oh, here's one other quick thing. Raphael also suggests that the humans, if they remained unfallen because they're made of the same material as angels, would eventually transcend and they would, uh, as John Rogers of Yale says, they would metabolize the latent grossness of their bodies and become angelic. They would achieve a kind of heaven without dying, um, which I think is completely heretical um, to my understanding. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, that's some heresy. Wee, yeah, wee, yeah. Wee. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, let me. Uh, oh, and then we get here's the other thing we get. Um, what is the cause for the war? And why? In in it's worth asking. So what is the cause for the war in heaven? What is the what is the sort of proximate cause? Like, oh, generally Satan is a megalomaniac and he feels like he's not getting his share. But like, what what was was there an inciting incident? And we learn that only just read this because I want to make sure we get a little bit of Milton's voice. We're not going to read a ton of it. Um, God and, you wouldn't know. let Satan have the controller. He was, play, he was playing a two-player game, but he would right. not let Satan jump in and play Tekken Precisely. 3. Precisely, and yeah. It got, yeah. And that shit yeah. is still, they're still talking about that in that household. Well, it's like it was tied in with a lot of other things, you know? Sometimes he was, he you was, have he the was, argument. He, he yeah. was going undefeated, you know? Uh, this is God, the voice of God, and I know this seems he's making God a character, right? You're really, you really gotta be, you're doing a great job, but you, you really gotta milk this Mormon. You gotta be like, this is the voice of God. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're very modest. Okay. You're very, yeah. uh, yeah, genteel. <laughs> I am. I am. I am known for my gentility. Yeah. You're, um, you're a very modest guy, Brett. Mm -hmm. Um, I want you to think about something. Just picture Milton though. Okay. And then he he wakes up. He's been visited by an angel in the night. He calls out to his Amanusis and he says, where where is he? I need to be milked. This is something he actually said, apparently. Well, that's that's what I that's weird. That's yeah. a weird synchronicity. I yeah. just said that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. He, yeah, it is weird. Where yeah. is he? I need to be milked like he was like he was an udder of poetry yes. and he needed yeah. to be milked of poetry. Because yeah, like Ugh. if you don't milk the cows, it will like it's a problem, right? You have sure. to they have to be right. It's like that. Yeah. <laughs> For multiple reasons. But I'm I, using but... that. I'm using that line on my lady later. Where is she? I need to be. I need to be milked. Throw that oh, in the boy. repertoire. See yeah. how that does yeah. out yeah. there. Boys. Yeah, they love that. Report back. Report yeah. back. Yeah. <laughs> Ladies and can then... do it too. Ladies can say yeah. it too. Yeah. yeah. And then he has the audacity, right? He calls to be milked. The Amanusis comes in. And then he has the audacity to write in the voice of God. Now. When you're reading it along, and you might not think about this, God's a character. The events are happening. But then you realize that Milton is literally putting words in God's mouth. That's a pretty, that's a pretty audacious thing to do, right? And here's some of them. <clears throat> Hear all ye angels, progeny of light, thrones, dominations, princedoms, virtues, powers. Hear my decree, which unrevoked shall stand. This day I have begot whom I declare my only son, and on this holy hill him have anointed, whom ye now behold at my right hand. 
Your head I him appoint, and by myself have sworn to him shall bow all knees in heaven and shall confess him Lord. Under his great vice regent reign, abide, united as one individual soul, forever happy. Him who disobeys, me disobeys, breaks union in that day, cast out from God and blessed vision, falls into utter darkness, deep engulfed, his place ordained without redemption, without end. See? According to Milton, why the, the war in heaven? The creation of Christ kicks or kicks off the war in heaven because right. the angels are offended by. I think I knew this. Was yeah. this this is something he created? A concept he created? I believe that's the case. Yeah, yeah. I might be showing my theological ignorance, but I I believe hmm. that if someone knows better, that's yeah. yeah. Let, let us know. That's fascinating. Yeah. That is a fascinating concept. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, sure. Um, it definitely. It definitely. It poses the Adam and Eve story just hypothetically, like, let's say this happened. I mean, it poses the Adam and Eve story as more of the midpoint of like an ongoing conflict than it does Mm -hmm. as the start of something. Right. Um, Yeah. Interesting stuff. Now, a lot of people will say that Satan makes the best arguments in the book and that he is the most compelling figure. Um, And they will often also say that because Milton did that, Milton must have sympathies with him and they will also say well milton was part of the rebel army right and satan is the rebel so isn't he sympathizing with satan i'm not going to go argument to argument it it would be probably make for kind of boring radio for me to make satan's best read satan's best argument and then read abdiel's best argument but just know that when you get into book seven all of the all of satan's best arguments are roundly refuted by an angel that stayed on the side of God. Um, And ultimately, I think to overemphasize Milton's sympathy with the devil, and it's not that I I came to this like by myself. This is from listening to people like John Rogers doing a lot of reading, um, thinking very carefully about what's actually being said by all of them. I I think Satan or Milton has done the thing, which is, if you really want to come up with a good argument in um, narrative writing in fiction or in a play and in a film, what you have to do is you have to put a very good point in the mouth of the person who is wrong. And then you mm-hmm. have to show why that's wrong. That's sure. what they call now steel manning, right? Mm-hmm. And Dostoevsky is famous for doing this and a number of other writers where you, the smartest, most capable, they make an argument and it's it kind of the dynamic that we somehow. have. That's kind right. of the dynamic. That's the dynamic that we have. <laughs> I'm not, I'll let you guess who is, who's which, which is who. <laughs> and then guess Depends. which one of us thinks which one's who. Right, yeah. right, right. Depends <laughs> on the episode, I think. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, <laughs> that, that would be a funny idea. God and Satan have a podcast. Yeah, <laughs> right. I'd listen I to like the it. shit out of that. Yeah. I would yeah. binge that. I'd yeah. subscribe to their Patreon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, let's <laughs> stop here a moment. We're in the middle of Paradise Lost and recount some of Milton's heresies. The poem is inspired by an angel. I don't know if that's exactly heretical, but it's a bold claim to be making. Um, he's portraying the deity. Um, he's not putting that, words into God's mouth. He's putting words into God's mouth. Now, there is a point. Oh, did I not? Yeah, hold on. Let me read you something from book one really quick. This is really interesting. Um, 
he's calling when he's calling to the muse in book one, basically invoking like, let me write this poem. Mm-hmm. He says he's talking to the spirit and he says, <clears throat> and chiefly thou, O spirit, that dost prefer before all temples, the upright heart and pure instruct me for thou knowest thou from the first was present and with mighty wings outspread dove-like sat brooding on the vast abyss abyss and made it pregnant what in me is dark illumine what is low and raise in support that to the height of this great argument i may assert eternal providence and justify the ways of god to man he s- says the spirit that he wants to inspire him was in is like some kind of hermaphroditic being that impregnated chaos to create the world. I don't. Right. Yeah. So that's not. Yeah. <laughs> that's a pretty major heresy and it's kind of never revisited. He just kind of continues on, but it's a very, it's a potent image, but it's also very heretical. Um, uh, yeah, um, Milton as a monist, he's basically categorically, he might be considered an animist materialist or a vitalist, denying the idea of the soul, saying everything has a material aspect. Um, uh, basically, the f- soul is the body. The fact that you, your body, your your body isn't a vessel with a soul in it. You're made of matter that has been somehow charged with some kind of essence. Um and maybe it doesn't seem like a big difference, but to Milton, it is. Um, okay, that's just some of the heresies. Now, book nine, we um, we start things start getting interesting because we're getting into the actual temptation where Satan uh, lures Eve into eating the apple. And I just want to read quickly, just so you hear what these are like. the The front bit of this book that is called The Argument. Um, So Milton's argument for book nine. Satan, having compassed the earth with meditated guile, returns as a mist by night into paradise, enters into the serpent sleeping. Adam and Eve in their morning go forth to their labors, which Eve proposes to divide in several places, each laboring apart. Adam consents not, alleging the danger let... uh, lest that enemy of whom they were forewarned should attempt her found al- should attempt her found alone. Eve, loath to be thought not circumspect or firm enough, urges her going apart, the rather desirous to make trial of her strength. Adam at last yields. The serpent finds her alone, his subtle approach, first gazing, then speaking, with much flattery extolling Eve above all other creatures. Eve, wondering to hear the serpent speak, asks how he attained to human speech and such understanding not till now. The serpent answers that by tasting of a certain tree in the garden, he obtained both to speech and reason, till then void of both. Eve requires him to bring her to that tree and finds it to be the tree of knowledge forbidden. The serpent, now grown bolder, with many wiles and arguments, induces her at length to eat. She, ple- she, please- she pleased with the taste, deliberates a while whether to impart thereof to Adam or not. At last brings him of the fruit, relates what persuaded her to eat thereof, Adam, at first amazed, but perceiving her loss, resolves through vehemence of love to perish with her and extenuating the trespass, eats also of the fruit. The effects thereof in them both, they seek to cover their nakedness, then to fall to variance and accusation of one one another. So that's, this is basically where, this is the book that is 
uh, fundamentally Milton's recounting of what we already have in the Bible in the book of Genesis as the Adam and Eve story, the Garden of Eden story. Um, the point that I think is interesting and I don't is is he chooses Satan chooses to be a serpent uh, and he lures Eve by basically telling her like you could be like I'm a snake. I ate and I learned how to talk and think. Imagine what it would do for you. Imagine how powerful it could make you. How wise and intelligent could you be if you Mm -hmm. were to eat the same thing that I ate? Um, Very interesting. Um, Okay. Now, let's read a little bit. Greatest story ever told here, people. There's a reason this story continues to fascinate and move people. Yeah, Mm -hmm. It's a great story. Absolutely. Because it is capital T true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to read a T.S. Eliot complaint about Milton. As you do, I'll, yeah. I'm, I'm standing up. I am listening. I'll be right okay. back. Okay. Gotcha. All right. This is from T.S. Eliot on uh, one of his two great essays on uh, Milton. Quote, I am not suggesting that Milton has no idea to convey which he regards as important, only that the syntax is determined by musical significance, by the auditory imagination, rather than by any attempt to follow actual speech or thought. He's basically saying Milton is not realistic. He cares more about how things sound than if they actually convey what he's trying to convey. Going on, it is at least more nearly possible to distinguish the pleasure which arises from the noise from the pleasure due to other elements than with the verse of Shakespeare in which the auditory imagination and the imagination of the other senses are more nearly fused and fused together with the thought. The result with Milton is, in one sense of the word, rhetoric. That term is not intended to be derogatory. The kind of rhetoric is not necessarily bad in its influence, but it may be considered bad in relation to the historical life of the language as a whole. I've said elsewhere that the living... Uh, I've said elsewhere that the living English, which was Shakespeare's, became split up to two components of which uh, one was exploited by Milton and the other by Dryden. Okay, Um, going on just a little bit longer. If several very important reservations and exceptions are made, I think that it is not unprofitable to compare Milton's development with that of James Joyce. The initial similarities are musical tastes and abilities, followed by musical training and curious knowledge gift for acquiring uh, languages and remarkable powers of memory, perhaps fortified by defective vision. The important difference is that Joyce's imagine is not unnaturally, uh, not naturally so purely an auditory type as Milton. Okay. One takeaway here is if you're ever at a cocktail party and somebody's talking about the virtues of Shakespeare versus Milton, you can say something along the lines of, well, yes, Milton was very great, but his his voice is completely tuned to the auditory. Whereas with Shakespeare, we have a mingling of all of the senses at once. You were saying the other guy was dry Dan. Dry Dan. Dry Dan. Dry. That boy was dry Dan. Yeah. You want to put everybody asleep to sleep. People actually have conversations like that. You understand? understand I I don't have conversations with people. I I can appreciate it sometimes, but yeah, it does get to be a little bit huffy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, although, agreed. I mean, if you're going to listen to anybody, it would be T.S. Eliot. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, he's, you know, he's a little, uh, he's a bit of a, what would you call it? He's a bit anal, but smart, intelligent guy, for sure. I'm going to say the word, bit of a prig. But, bit of a prig. Uh, That's, I think, the word a, I was looking for. Maybe a little yeah. mean. Maybe a little mean. We'll yeah. cover him uh, eventually. Yeah. 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 Well, here's another thing. Um, uh, uh, yeah, I don't want to spend too much time on this. 
yeah, never mind. I was going to read some more Elliot, but we're focusing. Elliot has these two great essays on Milton that I think if you're at all interested in Milton, you haven't read them. They are worth reading. They're landmarks in because you have to think about where T.S. Eliot's positioned. He's positioned right at the movement of literary modernism. And so they're casting back through the English language to figure out what their lineage actually is or what actually led to now. And this is one of it's almost like an art. It's like a almost like an archaeological endeavor in some ways to understand I guess one way to think about it is if you're going to innovate and you're going to kind of make things keep happening, you do you don't have to necessarily tear down all of the statues of your heroes, but you do have to um, be able to see their flaws as well as their virtues. Right. You have to understand. So for Elliot, he had to understand that Milton's weakness was that he was primarily focused on according to Eliot primarily focused on the sound rather than integrating all the elements so if you want to be a greater poet than Milton what do you do well you integrate all the senses right it's a it's a it's a forensic dissection of what happened to in the English language so fascinating reading if you're into that sort of thing book 10 of Paradise Lost trying to get through this I know it's long but we're there's 12 books I'm on book 10 so book 10 and i trust get... like some sort of strange insect upon the completion of paradise lost he immediately dropped dead that's what I... <laughs> like yes, some sort of, of course yeah good <laughs> the last line he aspirated yeah. huh, and then he died and then something happened to his bones later which we'll find out yes go on right. Conti- continue yeah book 10 we get the enacting of god's punishment to satan to be forever a serpent and a great scene satan returns to pandemonium to find all of the devils had been turned into snakes they're all permanently snakes now they're all doomed satan is out of favor even in hell the snakes being quote deluded with a show of the forbidden tree springing up before them they seize upon the tree and they shake it's just a moment of chaos and basically you know it's going to be hell forever now down there. It's a, it's quite a striking book. Ten is quite striking, especially right at the end. Yeah, <laughs> hold that out. <laughs> yeah, Kevin's holding up the Bible. Got my to, Bible out yeah. here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Throw that on top of. Yeah, when you go to bed at night, if you're reading Paradise Lost, put the Bible on top of it. Is to keep it, is to yeah. keep it all in. Keep there. the yeah, keep the the devil <laughs> contained. Keep, keep him in his place. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, books 11 and 12, Adam and Eve are driven out Michael. So Raphael came down. He was like a messenger. He was like, guys, listen, man, snakes, Satan's going to come. It's going to be rough. But if you do this, it'll be all right. And oh yeah, here's how the world works. And Adam's asking him questions and he's trying to answer him. And he's all cool. Michael comes down and Michael was like the general in the war in heaven. This yeah, guy is like a badass. Avenging. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 So, you know, he's he's got weapons and he's rough and he is not screwing around. Um, He is the person who is to. Execute the punishment on Adam and Eve, he's the ones to make sure they get out of the garden and stay out. Right. Um, But an interesting thing is Michael tells Adam everything that's going to happen to humanity. He tells them the story of Noah and the flood. He tells them of Moses. He tells them eventually uh, of Jesus. Um, and it's just an interesting moment. Like, yeah, I really have to think, well, why is he telling him all of this? And it's 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 almost so he understands how weighty it is to disobey God, I suppose. Um, 
yeah, it's just a fascinating turn of events of of this of this. Just I'm going to tell you everything that's going to happen to you now and your people and your you know your children and your children's children. Um, yeah. Um, now I'll read. I suppose the last little bit. Um, I'm going to read the last, very last bit, and then I'm going to read one or two just parts that I think are interesting. And they're all going to be kind of short. And then we'll do a little final analysis on Milton's politics at the end of this. And then we're, we're going to kind of bring it home. Um, so book 12, get all the way, if you make it all the way to the end. <laughs> and book 11 and 12 are interesting, but have been noted to be stylistically perhaps the driest of them. Um, but I think this part at the very end is actually quite good. So I'm going to read this. This is the last, I don't know, 20 lines of Paradise Lost. And I'm not spoiling it because you already know what happens. <laughs> if you don't already know what happens in the in the Garden of Eden story, um, uh, none of this probably makes any sense. So. Yeah, yeah. No, if you don't know the Garden of Eden story, continue to listen because you're going to yeah. learn it right now on Art yes. of Darkness. Yeah, yeah. So, so Adam and Eve have eaten of the fruit, and they're being kicked out of heaven now. And they've been explained to them why and what's going to happen, and the whole history of the Bible has been laid out before them. <clears throat> Quote: The archangels stood, and from the other hill to their fixed station, all in bright array, the cherubim descended. On the ground, gliding meteor—what is that? Meteorous, like a meteor, uh, gliding like a meteor, and as evening mist risen from a river o'er the marish glades, and gathers ground fast as the laborers heel homeward, returning high in front, advanced the brandished sword of God before them, blazed fierce as a comet which with torrid heat and vapor as the Libyan air a dust began to parch that temperate climb, whereas in either hand the hastening angel caught our lingering parents and to the eastern gate led them direct and down the cliff as fast to the subjected plain, then disappeared. They, looking back, all the eastern side beheld of paradise, so late their happy seat, Waved over by that flaming brand, the gate with dreadful faces thronged and fiery arms, some natural tears they dropped, but wiped them soon. The world was all before them, where to choose their place of rest and providence their guide. They hand in hand with wandering steps and slow through Eden took their solitary way. And then all of human history happened, right? So there's on um, this sort of and and there's and and I think it, this really for me I know there's heretical aspects to to this and it, it but it really drove home to me the significance of the Garden of Eden story like the actual potency of it um, take it for believe it to whatever extent you want um, as a story it speaks to something deep and 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 uh almost in our dna and this i think the the real virtue of paradise lost is not necessarily that john milton was right about every aspect of it but he forces you to think about that story from so many different angles at such a depth that it it whatever again whatever you end up believing about the garden of eden story you come out with a richer ability to handle it in your own head 
You just have more of it. You've spent so much more time in its place thinking thinking through what all, all the significance is. Um, yeah. Um, let me read real quickly. The um, This is Abdiel responding to Satan during the war in heaven. This is when Satan was trying to convince the angel Abdiel to um, join him, and Abdiel didn't. He says to Satan, apostate, still thou erst, nor end will find of erring from the path of truth remote. Unjustly thou depravest it with the name of servitude, servitude to serve whom God ordains or nature. God and nature bid the same. When he who rules is worthiest and excels them who he governs, this is servitude to serve the unwise or him who hath rebelled against his worthier. So as thy now serve thee. Thyself not free, but to thyself enthralled, yet lewdly darest our ministering upbraid. Reign thou in hell thy kingdom. Let me serve in heaven God ever blessed, and his divine behests obey, worthiest to be obeyed, yet chains in hell. Not realms expect. Meanwhile from me returned, as erst thou saidst from flight, this greeting on thy imperious crest receive. Now, I don't expect people listening to this to have digested every single word in there, but uh, fundamentally what he's uh, combating against earlier, Satan had had a very famous uh, speech in which one thing he said is it's better to uh, it's better to reign in hell, uh, reign in hell than serve in heaven. Um, and what Abdiel basically is saying here is like, um, we should be led by the worthiest in this case, God the the worthiest should lead and and if you're following the worthiest that's not actually servitude that's not subjugation to follow the most worthy person in, in our like personal day-to-day -day terms the most the worthiest person um and in these terms to follow god right um it's a narcissistic megalomania megalomaniacal thing to go against what might be the worthiest authority that there is um which makes it interesting because, you know, Milton was the revolutionary. Milton called for the head of the king. Now, is the king the worthiest person? Maybe not. Uh, Cromwell doesn't seem to have been the worthiest person either. So, right. So it's just strange that Milton writes this, um, this long, intense book that um, in a lot of ways reifies hierarchy um, though he was a person who'd spent a lot of his life trying to tear the hierarchy, a hierarchies apart, if that makes sense. So it's sort of like, what is his, what is his thinking here? Um, there's been a lot of discussion about what this means for where Milton's politics were. Um, John Rogers, when, uh, the, the professor from Yale, what he basically says is that, <clears throat> Um, his okay so Milton had talked a lot about the people and in Paradise Lost the people really have more in common with Satan and the angels when I say the people I mean like the you and I right the, the, the people out there in the in the world in the community seem to have more in common with sort of Satan and the de devils than they do with Adam and Eve um, John Rogers says that 
Milton's experiences through the through the wars, through the king coming back, through the people not being able to rule themselves, right? Milton had an ideal that people could rule themselves. And then people were given the opportunity and they didn't do a very good job of it. <laughs> so Milton seems to be coming around to slowly coming around to the idea and he says this in his his later philosophical uh, later political tracks he basically goes from this idea that like wide open democracy to a, what would appear to be uh, and it, it's several steps he goes from this wide open every you know wide open democracy self-governing to basically thinking that the country should be led by a small puritan group of men who are all right with god um in a certain way right not 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 it's not like a a, count, a diverse council of all kind different kinds of ideas it's basically people who generally agree with milton's puritan in, puritan tendencies um and that these people should basically have a monopoly on violence um and you could uh this group could one of the things that they ought to do is basically through violence, if necessary, force people to recognize the fact that they are uh, self-determined individuals. It's a very kind of strange, uh, 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 almost self-contradictory perception, but it's like it's it's sort of like what Milton's God is doing here. Milton's God is going to say, I know what's going to happen to you, but you've got enough free will to kind of go screw it up. But ultimately, I'm in charge. Um, so anyway, that's kind of a rambling kind of way to say Milton's idea of of hierarchy and politics that is sort of suggested or implied in Paradise Lost seems to map with his own personal evolution politically. Um, he ends... Towards the end of his career, he is not the wild-eyed radical that he was at the beginning of the English Civil War. He's dispirited um, in a lot of ways, politically, if not religiously. And he's, again, like the thing we were saying before, he wanted to write a nationalist epic. And then he realized there was no epic. There was no, na there was no nation. Um, he wanted people to rule themselves. And he realized that they were incapable of it. Um, and so he's reckoning with all these things with and all the religious implications that they would have. Now, um, <clears throat> oh, one other quick thing, uh, real quick about Paris Lost, and then we're, we're going to get we're getting right to the end here. Um, Michael, the Archangel Michael shows it's just an interesting note. The Archangel Michael shows Adam all of history by putting this water in his eyes it's like a medically or chemically induced revelation and i just it's just very interesting that milton would choose to do that it's right you know it's right at the end where basically michael administers this thing and and adam has like a vision he has like a hallucinatory vision of history laid out before him it's very interesting um Okay. How is Paradise Lost received? Well, uh, here's one thing I, I will I will uh, I will give you. Um, 
from the BBC article, Why You Should Reread Paradise Lost. Quote, Paradise Lost gained immediate acclaim even among royalists. Even Milton's enemies thought this was a masterpiece. The poet laureate John Dryden reworked uh, Milton's epic, casting Cromwell in the role of Satan. Uh, Samuel J- uh, um, Dryden's version also rhymed. Uh, Samuel Johnson uh, would rank Paradise. Samuel Johnson, who thought Milton in some ways was despicable and could not account for the regicide, ranked Paradise Lost among the highest, quote, productions of the human mind. But not all critics were so favorable. The 20th century brought us the, quote, Milton controversy during which his legacy was fiercely contested. We talked about this a little bit. Um, So anyway, interestingly enough, he remains controversial and debatable up till right now, this conversation we're having, I suppose. Um, Let's see, what else is what else has he got going on? Um, He writes uh, he writes. Uh, paradise regained which we're not going to talk a whole lot about it's uh it's basically jesus it's the story of jesus being tempted by satan and winning not not falling into temptation he writes uh samson agonistas which is a epic poem about samson um both have i i didn't read all both of them through they're both quite interesting um Paradise Regained is a lot shorter than Paradise Lost, and it, it makes it sound like a sequel. And I suppose in some ways it is, but um, it's probably also heretical. Uh, but one thing that Milton does in there, which nobody at that time had done, is Milton tries to position Jesus as a as a person with an interiority, um, as having an individualized psychology, right? Which According to some scholars, nobody had really, really attempted that since since the writing of the Bible. So take that for what it's worth. Um, okay. So let's see. Um, there are still political intrigues going on in these later years. 1667, the first edition of Paradise Lost comes out. 1674, Milton is dead. Um, there is still, of course, the creeping threat of Catholicism everywhere. Are there Catholics in the room with us right now? Uh, <laughs> I'm afraid so. Yeah, uh, yeah there are still hey, attacks. Say, on... <laughs> uh, is there popery? Is this popery in the room right now? I like how it sounds like popery. Popery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the same yeah. word. The yeah, one has yeah. a lot more letters. Yes, yes, that's right. Uh, there are still um, public attacks from the old royalist people who are still you know and more orthodox anglicans you know the things that milton had said and done were not forgotten but many people from across the continent would come to visit him while he's sitting there blind and full of gout in his country home um like we said he is starting to fight with his daughter he well not starting to the fight with his daughters continues and we're going to talk more about that in the dark room um uh yeah so let's and we're coming in on his death so let me just read this last little bit from the biography and then we're almost home here kevin to i've had a wonderful Um, time i've been looking forward to this one i know you've worked your rump off your rump parliament off (laughs) this one was Uh, tough yeah Yeah. this is a slog this is one of those where you say oh i'm gonna i'm gonna do john milton Right. Next like, year. Wait. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, like that, I agreed to do that, Dante, and I'm sort yeah. of going, oh, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. When I decided oh. to do Milton, yeah, last year, I was like, that's a problem for future Brad. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're just like the voice of God. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is reading from the biography here. <clears throat> In July of 1674, Milton was having a bad fit of gout. His wife cooked him a meal he enjoyed, and he commented, quote, God have mercy, Betty. I, her name is Elizabeth. I see thou wilt perform according to thy promise in providing me such dishes as I think fit while I live. And when I die, thou knowest that I have left thee all. Okay, now we're going to we're going to. Um, uh, yeah, I'm going to keep reading this actually for a second. Um, he was anticipating his death. His brother Christopher visited uh, in July and found him in poor health. He said, brother, the portion due to me from Mr. Powell, my former wife's friend, uh, my former wife's father, I leave to the unkind children I had by her, but I have received no part of it. And my will and meaning is they shall have no other benefit. Now we're going to talk more about this, but this is the Milton will. Where does the money go? Who gets it? All of that. Um, now here is the last little bit, uh, Syriac Skinner, Milton's longtime pupil and friend, author of the biography that was long called anonymous describes Milton's death as if he were an, an eyewitness. It is reminiscent of the death of Socrates or of the virtuous men who passed mildly away at the beginning of, uh, John Donne's valediction forbidding mourning. Syriac Skinner says this. He died in a fit of the gout, but with so little pain or emotion that the time of, of his expiring was not perceived by those in the room. So, great man passes away rather quietly. Uh, yeah, and, and yeah, he's still with us. <laughs> mm, very much so. Yeah. yeah, I can't. I'm going to have to go shower. I'm going to have to go get him off me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a he's a tough one. He's a tricky, tricky fellow. Yeah, he is. He, is. he had and, he had children. He had children with his. Was it with the second wife that he had? He had children with. with um, he had four children with his first wife. One of them okay. died in infancy. He had one child with his second wife, but they both died. She died after. Yeah, they both. Is that right? Okay. Yeah, I think he was left right. with three daughters ultimately. So four yeah. children by the by the first wife, the one who was yeah. coming and going. That was sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Who didn't seem to like him? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> so, and then did how he, that went. Did he, did he? And excuse me if you said this. It's been four and a half. No, I get whatever. It. Yeah. It's been. Yeah. Did did he got divorced from her or did she? No, she came back and then she died. She, she died, died giving okay, birth got it. to the fourth so he, child. Got it. So he was arguing for. I'm just catching up. So fourth mm -hmm. child. Okay. That's that's tragic. He lived. He, he lived his fair share of of, of tragedy. Yeah. He he really did. I mean, you can say he invited some of it on his own head, but uh, it's a lot of death. And like I said, man, I, these I, fires I, and these plagues, like I, life was We, we can't really under uh, like overstate too how death in childbirth was, if not common, it was like kind of expected or yeah. like not unheard of. Oh, yeah. You, you would know somebody who died in childbirth or whatever. And, you know, and, and that does is sort of... It, that story is kind of about that the mm -hmm. the agony after the garden mm -hmm. it's all tied up it's all tied yeah. up together so oh yeah because you know, we weren't there you weren't giving birth in the garden no no that's not right. how it works no of course yeah right yeah right so right. it stands to reason you know he was probably aware of that um mm -hmm. and everybody he's just trying to wrestle with it and make sense of it and mm -hmm. and then he had a third wife 
And there were yes. there was a huge age gap for for number two and number three. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. I'm yeah. just trying to I'm just trying to wrap my head around sure. what I just heard. That's Great job, Brad. <laughs> Thanks, man. We're gonna come back on the after dark. We're gonna we're gonna do more about Milton. I got Dante coming up. We're talking yeah. about doing a Twitter spaces or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, an X spaces on the bird oh, website. Yeah. Uh Brad and I are gonna have a big production meeting in northern northern Michigan in the coming mm-hmm. weeks. It's my birthday coming up. It is your birthday, cuts. My right. birthday and my my uh, little son is going to turn three years old on the very same Ooh, day. We share a birthday, awesome. so that's cool. That's coming up. Uh, we just delivered this. We we just delivered the Frida Kahlo episode, mm-hmm. and we hope you're enjoying Art of Darkness. I there are new listeners coming along all the time, and yeah, we watch absolutely. the numbers. We're just chugging away, <laughs> churning away at our little war, our little yeah. re- rebellion against the podcast gods. That's right. We're going to take the throne. Kevin, I got to ask you real quick. Question, close the question. What do mm-hmm. you think Milton's doing? I think he's shit posting on Twitter. I mean, it depends on what what period of Milton we're getting, yeah. right? Are we getting yeah. old blind Milton? Yeah. Uh, I think old blind Milton maybe right maybe writing you yeah. know probably yeah. using more modern tools he might still be shit posting on twitter yeah he'd yeah. have all yeah. sorts of like accessibility <laughs> tools and he could right. just be you know torturing the hell out of <laughs> out of people uh <laughs> out of his political enemies um yep. you know although i i like to think that like older aged milton maybe maybe would would still be sitting down to write the great long epic I like the masterpiece. Think so. yeah. yeah, younger like Milton so. was definitely a a shit posting oh, yeah. or troll yeah. uh, on yeah, Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> who would yeah. have like, who also then like ended up with a government job, right, uh, at a <laughs> right. very high level after yeah. like it got real. I mean, he yeah. literally doxed the guy. He contacted people in a foreign country who had dirt on somebody on his, one of his enemies, right. Yeah, <laughs> that nothing changes. Brad, I know what it yeah. feels like to finish one of these core episodes. Great work. Ah, that was a thanks. lot of fun. We just got to we just got to come back for the after dark mm-hmm. and cover. What are we talking about? And this for this for Patreon, you get all the after darks. You yeah. should subscribe. It's awesome. Patreon.com slash yeah, art of dark pot. We're talking about the scandals around Milton and his daughters and the money. And we're talking about what happened one drunken night to milton's bones hmm. yeah it's a good story cool. yeah 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 okay cool. i'm really excited about that yeah. what what would what would you say it's better to have an independent podcast in hell than some gourmet <laughs> tier establishment <laughs> show in heaven yeah 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 